Astonishing Legends is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Purple, Squarespace, Upstart, Mint Mobile, Bespoke Post, Wondrium, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we brought you the bizarre legend of Mary Laurency Venom, a young woman seemingly possessed by the spirit of Mary Roth, who had passed away 12 years prior. Although the two girls lived in the same town, on their age difference alone, we know that they never crossed paths. The parents knew who each other were, but beyond that, the families were strangers to one another. Rancy was so overtaken by the spirit of Mary Roth that when Roth was occupying her body, Rancy could not recognize her own family, theoretically because Mary Roth hadn't known the Venom family at all when she was alive. On top of that, Rancy was quick to interact with people that would have been familiar to Mary Roth, although she could sometimes be confused by their age or the fact that maybe they were now married because over a dozen years had passed since she was last on the earthly plane and had seen them in person. If all of the details of this well-documented story are to be believed, then Rancy Venom, when possessed by Mary Roth, was able to recall people and experiences that no other living soul could have known about. One might speculate that Rancy and Mary had been friends when Mary was alive, but Rancy was only three months old when Mary Roth died. Now that we've told the story in part one of this series, it's time to look at whether or not it all really happened. And if it did, what the people who investigated it thought, not only about the circumstances of it, but how it might have worked. It turns out there was, in many cases, a general agreement that the details of this astonishing legend were true. What people could not agree on was what the machinations behind it were. After all, Accepting that something like this could happen means some part of our consciousness definitely exists outside the confines of our bodies. If that's true, is that consciousness still sentient and can it be interactive? Or is it just a collection of readily accessible data in the cloud? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The angels tell me I am going to heaven, but I don't know just when. Oh, how I wish you could live here at home with us as you used to when I was here before. Laurency Venom as Mary Roth to Roth's now 34-year-old sister Minerva from the Watsika Wonder by E.W. Stevens, Religio-Philosophical Publishing House, 1878. Join us tonight for the final part of our two-part series on the Watsika Wonder, Mary Laurency Venom. And we're back. Okay, I got... What, who is that? I have no well, idea who that is. Uh, <laughs> that's my second stupid, silly impression of this gentleman who was a TV medium channeler. He used to be on uh, TV talk shows, I think, in the 90s, early 90s, probably. Oh, okay. And he had such a distinctive voice, and that was the voice he would do. Like, I'm channeling the voice of... And then he would kind of close his eyes. Yeah. Uh, he wore, I think, a lot of sweaters and tweed sport coats. 
and I can't remember his name. I spent way too much here during this break where we paused recording to look him up and I couldn't find him. So if any of you out there in our listening audience knows who I'm talking about, please send us the answer on Twitter. I think you do it and you do another impression so they have more fodder. Well, <laughs> come on. It was... I'll just do it again and we're back. All right. We'll next look at the case of Mary Lurice Venom from the 1870s. Yeah. Uh, he was kind of like a male version of Catherine Hepburn uh, sounding when he was in the trance. Okay. He was gotcha. a little bit shaky like this and he would speak anyway. So my point being is that when people go into that and, you know, you have a somewhat skeptical audience, they're like, come on, dude, really? That's that's the voice you're going to go with? Yeah. That was also an allusion to our cold open from uh, part one where I did the voice of Tommy boy. This is Tommy boy. And I'm speaking right. to you. And so- and there is a connection here because there was a young boy that Mary Laurency Venom claimed to have inhabited her just for a tiny bit. Yes. Remember when Dr. Stevens said, uh, who am I speaking to? And first it was a, a, a young boy. Then it was an older uh, middle-aged German woman. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, but those were so lies. So those two things are going to actually figure in some of our conclusions as we get towards the end of tonight's episode. So remember that, folks. Yeah. Well, folks, we are back. And before we get into it, just a couple of very quick housekeeping notes. Firstly, we'd like to again congratulate the Midnight Library on passing 1 million downloads. Yay. If you haven't checked out that show, it is another Astonishing Legends production and very different from our main show here. It's a lot of fun, and like our show, it contains a wealth of esoteric knowledge and the lovely mm. Miranda Merrick. So look for the Midnight Library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or just ask your smart speaker to play it for you. Yeah, and we'd also like to congratulate our dear friend Marie Mayhew, M-squared, on having her podcast, Whatever Remains recently featured on 48 Hours. She did an amazing series on the Circleville letters, and when they decided to cover that story, they consulted with her, and with good reason. Marie started out in the podcast world as a member of the Astonishing Research Corps and a great friend of ours, and before long, she was part of two podcasts, the Mad Scientist podcast with fellow researcher and another great friend of ours, Dr. Chris Cogswell, and then her own show, Whatever Remains. So look for both of those on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all those other places podcasts live. Yes, and because it seems like we often have to say things a few times before they stick, a quick reminder that we're working on a new round of pint glasses that will feature these same Astonishing Legends characters from the run we did a few years ago, but in different colors to keep both sets unique. They will be sold in sets of six when they're done, and we're hoping to have them ready by the beginning of October. Also, we're posting this show on the 20th anniversary of the 2001 September 11th attacks on New York City. Everyone who's old enough to remember that day has a story to tell, and they are all important. I, for one, was in Los Angeles getting ready to move to New York City so my wife, Emily, could start her job as a writer at Saturday Night Live. We actually wound up moving into the city just 10 days after the attack, and wow. I'll never forget how wounded everything felt, but also how amazing New Yorkers were at taking care of each other during that horrible time. Yeah, and for myself, in my past job incarnation, that was the day of the show for the Nissan dealer meeting for 2001 in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay. So we had loaded in a little over a week prior to that, and then, of course, we do all the pre-production rehearsals and, and tech runs and all that. That leads up to the day of the show, which was September 11th. Oof, and yeah. I will never forget that getting up very early to make production and just happening to turn on CNN because I usually don't have cable and I enjoy watching that in a hotel room when working on those jobs and just seeing that image and it's like, okay, something's going on here. This is not, 
normal. And then the rest of the day was so surreal and bizarre also being in Vegas for that. Yeah. And the thing that sticks with me is that, you know, you see in the movies when something dramatic happens and everybody gathers around TVs in the old days when they didn't have their own TVs in their pockets, you gather around a store window and you watch something dramatic happen. That's what happened. The hotel wheeled out TVs and we all gathered around them downstairs in the ballroom areas. And it was bizarre, but we carried on. They didn't do the show as normal, but the executives made a speech, everybody saying, God bless America with Congress as it played on the big screens. And then they just let everybody eat and drink uh, the food that was there. And not many people ate much, but they sure drank a lot. Well, I bet. Well, we, we just wanted to acknowledge the grim anniversary of that day before we get into our show tonight. I know for me, being in the city so soon after the attacks happened is something that will always be with me. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, we've got a great show for you tonight as we get back into the Watsika Wonder. And now it's time to talk about the investigations that ensued after Laurency Venom was cured of her ailments and Mary Roth's spirit returned to heaven. And I think you're all going to find this really fascinating because it's a look at how they thought about it then, what a skeptical psychological investigator who is open to spiritism thought about it 30 years later, just after the turn of the 20th century, and how we might look at explanations for it now. And all of that is combined under the umbrella of a little bit of a history of spiritism. And it's just fascinating. So many rabbit holes with this one. Yeah, there's a lot of precedent-setting stuff here in terms of how things are approached even today. And after all that, of course, we'll get to our own conclusions, which aren't worth the digital pretend paper they're typed on in Google Docs, (laughs) but we're going to share them anyway. (laughs) Oh, come on. So picking up where we left off, this is the part of the story of the Watsika Wonder where folks start speculating about how this all probably worked. And Haven't read a ton of these books by now. I can tell you that they fall into two categories, really, in terms of narrative structure. On the one hand, authors more or less simply report the story. They may or may not embellish it to increase book sales, but they steer clear of speculation on how something unexplained may or may not work. The other category is like Dr. Stevens' book here. Keeping in mind, this was 1878, and he was a devoted spiritist. But at the end of the book, they start talking about what they think might be the mechanics for this sort of thing. And that's under the general assumption that it happened as written about and that the events are otherwise unexplainable. Now, Dr. Stevens was there. He wrote about this for the first time within months of it happening. There are frequent references to mesmerism in the theories posited in this book, not just by Dr. Stevens, but other folks of similar ilk. We've discussed mesmerism on the show numerous times before, and it's not practiced that much anymore, but it was originally also known as animal magnetism, Mm -hmm. which has been the name of many rock albums, I'm sure. And however it may (laughs) sound today, the ideas behind it do have connections to therapies that are still offered today, but are classified on websites like Wikipedia as fringe medicine or fringe science. Yes, but I want you and I to get into it. I I want you and I to study the practice of mesmerism, because wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, that would be cool. And animal magnetism. I've already got animal magnetism. (laughs) That (laughs) is true. uh, That is true. I've been there to see it in person. Wikipedia, though, I mean, and we've brought this up on the show before, it's Mm -hmm. over the past couple of years, it's really trended towards over-categorizing things into the fringe and pseudo-cat. They just love to put that. Whoever's driving a lot of these entries now, that's what they always put. Well, it's not just new entries on stuff. Somebody's going back and relabeling a lot of this stuff as, in parentheses, hoax or pseudo blank, whatever it is, somebody's going back with a, a big paintbrush and labeling all this stuff. And it may be, that's not my point. It's just that 
it seemed in the old days it used to be more presenting both sides, but with also saying if something was a bit fringy or pseudo-science, they would mention that. Now it's just basically getting rid of stuff. So that's weird. Yeah, and here's the thing. When you start to hear some of the descriptions of how they think the takeover and possession of Lawrence e. Venom's body by the deceased Mary Roth might have worked, you start to get lost in what seems like antiquated language. Of course, this was 1877 or 78. Sure. And speculative theory, but listen listen to this section from The Watsika Wonder by Stevens, uh, E.W. Stevens. The healing power which can be imparted and aroused through the psychic forces are multitudinous and vast in their proportions. Disease may be said to be any derangement in the proper balancing of the working forces of body or mind, and the adjustment of those forces, restoring the equilibrium, will bring a return of health. Changing the polarity of the brain magnets deranges the individual psychic control over the bodily functions and can only be restored to a normal action through some external impression or control, which influences the mental machinery to resume its normal relations and assert its wanted activities. This may perhaps be accomplished through the influence of drugs, but aside from their specific action upon special organs, they are undoubtedly more efficient in their operation upon the mind, in some way arousing the psychic forces which wheel the unbalanced organs into harmonious relations by which the vigor of health is regained and the physician and his remedies are applauded. Hmm. Mm? You got, you followed that? Because I don't follow hardly uh, any of it. I <laughs> like, I can't, I don't even know what's happening here. Well, to me, it sounds a little bit like he's talking about balance in your humors. That, that's going further back with your four humors and all that. Yeah. I'm talking about just energies, which now I know what's funny, 1877, that may have sounded in a particular way to people of that time. Keeping in mind, this guy was a certified regular physician and a spiritist. So I believe he was melding those two principles together. Nowadays, it would sound very woo-woo and new agey to, you know, balance your chakras and your, your energies and your left and your right side positive energies. In fact, a good friend of mine just showed me something that was a Hindu burial practice where they tie the toes together, sometimes the hands together for burial before cremation so that it closes off the circular path of energy within your body, even after you're dead. Uh -huh. So that you kind of, you're closing your circuits off so that you're, you're efficiently swirling in one good direction before they cremate you and release you to the universe. So that's interesting, but that's an ancient practice of India. And here it just sounds like he's talking about, well, when things are out of balance and of course they didn't know much about brain chemistry or the electromagnetic properties of the brain, not like they do now, what they can do with uh, CAT scans and PET scans and all that, and map that in real time. But it sounds like he's talking about something like that to me, where, you know, he's talking about a balance, and when it gets out of balance, only an external force can ride it and achieve that balance again. And when that happens, usually it's more of a mental thing than a physical thing. That's kind of what I got from that passage. Yeah, I guess that's the takeaway. The thing that's interesting and we're going to get into here is that they they are trying to apply some sort of scientific approach to this, but they also know that there's a whole lot that they don't know. Yeah. I'll go ahead and say there's part of this that sounds too fringy for me, but mm -hmm. then also I personally believe in the power of acupuncture. I've directly benefited from it and Reiki yeah. too, uh, which a lot of people poo-poo that as well. And, and we have friends <laughs> who practice it and I would say quite effectively. So I've directly experienced the benefits of both both, right. again, classified by Wikipedia as fringe medicine and science, which I think is unfairly dismissive label. Sure. And certainly nowadays, a popular alternative medicine practice is homeopathy. 
And I, of course, just looked that up while you were talking because I wondered if anything you were just describing here from that passage had anything to do with homeopathy. So I quickly looked up just the wiki page here, and it was conceived in 1796 by German physician Samuel Hahnemann. And of course, the first sentence says, homeopathy or homeopathy, I guess, is a pseudoscientific system of alternative medicine. And their, their motto is like cures like, as it goes on to say here, that its practitioners called homeopaths believe that a substance that causes symptoms of a disease in healthy people can cure similar symptoms in sick people. The doctrine is called similia similibus curantur, or like cures like. So I still don't know much about it, but I know that a lot of people believe that it have gone to homeopaths and found treatment and success with it. And my position is that even if it's the placebo factor, that is relief enough for me. I'll take the placebo factor. Yeah. I mean, I guess if it works, it works. That's some people that are infuriated by that idea or sure. by the idea that you can't <laughs> scientifically, to their definition of science, describe a process like this perfectly. Right. I find myself asking, is the question of how this works the most important one to ask? And I'm not sure that it is. I mean, there's absolute value in understanding how someone with a problem may have been healed. So you can repeat the process and help others for sure. But on the other hand, we're an entertainment podcast and this legend is a story tonight. <laughs> it was enough of an event that people still talk about it today. So much of it would have to be disregarded simply to place the explanation of everything that took place on two misunderstood cases of epilepsy, catalepsy, and other undiagnosed mental health issues. Well, Towards the end of Stephen's book, there is a collection of statements from various members of the Religio-Philosophical Journal, as well as the participants in this story. The letters are all very impassioned with various experts of the day, many having degrees in medicine as well as interest in spiritism, and theoretically spiritualism as well, and they testify to how a story of this nature must be approached with an open mind. In the supplementary statements here, there was one by Mr. Asa Roth, Mr. A.B. Roth, that was Mary Roth's father, who was a central component in all of this. He is the one that seemed to be at the middle of events when it came to determining that his deceased daughter might be able to help Mary Lorancy Venom with her seizures and the problems she was having when she was about to be committed. And this is the letter he wrote after everything had transpired and Lorancy had seemingly been cured because, as you can imagine, this was it was being written about all over the country in lots of newspapers. And he was responding to that here. I'm going to read this from E.W. Stevens' book directly, his letter, Mr. Roth's letter. Being almost daily in receipt of letters from readers of the journal inquiring as to the truthfulness of the narrative entitled The Watsika Wonder, and not having time to fully answer all their questions, I am impelled to collect from them the prominent points of inquiry and objection, and briefly reply through the journal. Persons hereafter writing me who do not receive an answer to their letters will seek for the information desired in this article. One writer inquires, is it a fact or is it a story made up to see how cunning a tale one can tell? Another asks, can the truthfulness of the narrative be substantiated outside of yourself and those immediately interested? Can it be shown that there was no collusion between the parties and no former acquaintance? A reader of the journal suggests, quote, it is a pretty big yarn and there might be some arrangement between the parties or if they themselves deceived, end quote. Another, after saying he has read the narrative, remarks, I confess that I am not of your faith, and I am very doubtful whether newspapers are always embodiments of sacred truths, and I wish that under your hand, as a gentleman, you might confirm to me and other doubting friends the strange, mysterious, and to me fanciful statements in those two papers. I write wholly to overcome a doubting feeling that exists with myself and friends in regard to that remarkable and wonderful personation. 
A lady writes, is the account true in every particular? I hope there is a life beyond this, but I have never had any proof. Mr. Roth responds, I furnished Dr. Stevens with all the material facts in the case, except such as were within his own knowledge. The history of the Venom family and Laurency's condition up to the time he and I went to see her June 31st, I obtained from the members thereof and the neighbors intimately acquainted with them. The narrative as written by Dr. Stevens is substantially true in every part and particular, yet the half has not been told and never can be. It is impossible for pen to describe or language portray the wonderful events that transpired during that memorable 14 weeks that the girl was at our house. The material facts of the case can be substantiated by disinterested witnesses whose veracity cannot be questioned and whose evidence would settle any case in a court of law. I refer you to Robert Doyle, Charles Sherman, S.R. Hawks, Lyle Marsh, J.M. Huber and their wives, and to Mrs. Mary Wagner, formerly Mary Lord, all residents of Watsika, as to collusion, arrangement, or ourselves being deceived, that is simply impossible, as you will see if you carefully read the whole narrative over again. I, too, doubt whether newspapers are always embodiments of sacred truths. But in this case, I assure the writer, the journal does embody a very sacred truth, that of man's immortality. The lady writes me, I hope there is a life beyond this, but I never have had the proof. To her, I would say, carefully read and study that narrative, in that you have the proof, for surely it is contained there. That there is a life beyond this, or rather that there is no death, you may rest assured. There is only a change simply a removal of the real man or woman from this temporary house of clay to that house not made with hands. There is no death. The stars go down to rise upon some fairer shore, and bright in heaven's jeweled crown they shine forevermore. There is no death. The leaves may fall, the flowers may fade and pass away. They only wait through wintry hours the coming of the May. And ever near us, though unseen, the dear immortal spirits tread, for all the boundless universe is life. There are no dead. In talking with Mary, we sometimes spoke of her death. She would quickly reply, I never died, or I did not die. She never tired of talking of the life beyond this. She would at any time leave her play, her reading, or her jovial companions to talk with her pa and ma about heaven and the angels, as she termed spirit life, and spirits that have left the body. I have questioned Laurency Venom on different occasions as to whether she remembered anything that occurred during the time that Mary had control of her organism, and she states that a very few things occurring the last month that she was controlled, she recollects, but that in all cases the information was imparted by Mary. In conclusion, let me say to those who doubt or disbelieve the strange, mysterious, and wonderful story, call to mind Laurency's condition at her home last January, surrounded with all the kind care of parents, friends, and physicians everything done to alleviate her suffering and perform a cure that human minds and hands could possibly do, yet growing continually worse, if that were possible. Given up by her physicians, her friends without a ray of hope, the insane asylum ready to receive her, a condition terrible to behold. Then view her condition from May 21st until today, over three months, a bright, beautiful, happy, healthy girl, and then tell me what produced the change. The narrative furnishes the facts. Account for them if you can, on any other hypothesis, than the power exercised through or by the spirit of Mary Roth having control of Laurency's body. I am now 60 years old, have resided in Iroquois County 30 years, 
and would not now sacrifice what reputation I may have by being a party to the publication of such a narrative if it was not perfectly true. If anyone should desire testimonials of my standing, Colonel Bundy has some to use as he deems best. Watsika, Illinois, August 23rd, 1878, Asa B. Roth. Well, it seems like a very polite and nice Reddit thread from 1878. <laughs> People being a lot more civil to each other back then, I'm sure. Just as curious and inquisitive and skeptical, but approaching it a lot differently than as it would be perhaps portrayed today in our social media. So to be clear, these are people writing letters to the Religio-Philosophical Journal, a newspaper, that Roth is responding to, and they're going back and forth, and these are being printed, the questions and answers, and that was his response. And again, I think people are being a lot more civil, as we'll see later on in this era, as they are, even with their questions and people saying like, well, I don't know, maybe there's some collusion Perhaps you may have just been honestly and innocently fooled yourselves. Is that a possibility? And this is the response, is that I don't think so. <laughs> if you were there, you would see the change, and you would know this to be the truth. You had to be there, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you had to be there. That's a good point. And I mean, these people that were involved, they clearly all believe what happened. However, I've said it before in part one, and I'll say it again, I see more room for confirmation bias in this story than usual with stories mm -hmm. we're addressing. I mean, if you look at the big picture here and all the players, you see the mourning parents of a daughter taken too soon, finding the likeness of that daughter and another young woman of similar age suffering similar symptoms that took their daughter away. Of course, they want to believe their lost child has come back to them and that they're talking to her. And we can't forget that this whole situation came to light when the father, Asa Roth, whose letter I just read, became involved with the parents of Mary Laurency Venom. Mm -hmm. There couldn't be a more ripe situation for wanting to believe. What I'm saying is that when it came to thinking that they were talking to their dead child of a dozen years, the bar was probably pretty low on the qualification because of how much they would love to reconnect with her. What's more comforting than being able to make that communication with your lost loved one, especially a child, one more time? So I just want to keep that in mind. It'll circle back around to my overarching philosophies here. But okay. but those philosophies are also influenced by a lot of what you came up with in terms of the investigation into this case once it was, right. uh, once it was done. Well, one thing I want to keep in mind for myself and you to keep in mind and all of our listeners to keep in mind is that I kept that at the forefront of my mind when you said there was confirmation bias. I certainly uh, read that with E.W. Stevens and the Roths and even with the Venoms because this extraordinary thing is happening in front of their eyes for a good stretch of time. They all saw it happen and they lived through it and they lived to see the conclusion of it with a happy ending for Mary Roth, people pass away. You have to accept that. But they got their daughter back healthy as ever. Right. Lurency Venom is right. what I mean. So when you talked about confirmation bias, I, I kept that in mind. And as I read through, let's say, the contemporary investigation or certainly more contemporary investigation of the era by a journalist who focuses on science and psychology, in particular, H. Addington Bruce, who I've come to really respect and really like his writing. And I'm going to get to reading a, a bunch of it when we get to the conclusions part for him. But then I wondered, does he have a bias? Well, of course he does. He's a human being. What about the biggest names of the day in psychology? And I'm talking about mainstream psychology and also spiritism and the connection between the two. That was fascinating. And what you realize is that all these people, as smart as they are, the brightest minds of the day 
all are coming from a bias of what they studied and what they believe in. And especially for a very esoteric subject, when you start to talk about spirits and telepathy and telekinesis and the secret mysterious workings of the human mind, which they can only see from the outside. Again, they didn't have the scanning devices that we have now to see the brain in activity that we do now and all the medications that we can see have an effect on people. They didn't have that then. A lot of it was observational and a lot of it was through study of existing cases. So that is how this analysis is put together by Bruce. And that's what we're gonna take a look at now. So in this section here, which I've called contemporary investigation, we're gonna start off with, again, this is a response about Asa Roth's character, which I believe back then counted for a lot more than it does now. So yes. when a respected, highly respected individual of society says they vouch for this person, People were like, okay, well, this guy says he's he's of upstanding character. Let's go with that. Nowadays, it just invites a lot of flame mail and, and hate on social media. That's where that goes. It means a lot less today. So following that commentary that we talked about in the paper there, this appeared in the Religio Philosophical Journal, uh, several letters from well-known Illinois professional men warmly endorsing Mr. Roth's character. Now, this is adding to Bruce saying this and an announcement to the effect that the editor, Colonel J.C. Bundy, who you just mentioned before. Yeah, that's he mentioned he at said, the end like, of his letter. Uh -huh. If you have any questions about my character, refer to him. Bundy himself, of undoubted honesty, said, quote, has entire confidence in the truthfulness of the narrative and believes, from his knowledge of the witnesses, that the account is unimpeachable in every particular, end quote. As for Dr. Stevens, Bruce goes on to write, Colonel Bundy declared that he had been personally acquainted with the physician for years and had, quote, implicit confidence in his veracity. And after all this, accusations of perjury and deception were obviously futile and no adequate non-spiritistic interpretation being forthcoming. There was an increasing tendency to accept the view advanced by those who had participated in the affair. So isn't that interesting? After these men vouched for both the characters of Dr. Stevens and Mr. Roth, it's like, well, I don't know, maybe this did happen, as they said. <laughs> That's what Bruce is getting at, and that no other explanation that was logical came forward. Maybe they're telling the truth as it happened. Maybe we don't know why it happened the way it did, or what were the, as you said, the, the machinations of that going on, but we tend to believe that they're telling the truth, and that that's what they saw, and this is what they believe. And back then, perhaps a more civil era in American culture, as I said, a respected member of society vouches for somebody or their, their truthfulness and integrity of a person's character, and that seemed to carry a lot more weight, and certainly a lot more than it does these days. <laughs> it's funny, when you brought this up, I was thinking about how when you put something out there, if you wanted to refute somebody or call them out and say, uh, worst episode ever, as they say <laughs> in The Simpsons, you had to go buy a printing press, get a bunch of people who know how to print things, <laughs> write what you wanted to say, print it up. And then on top of that, you had to get out there and distribute it. It was just a lot of effort to go and troll somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but there were people that did it. Yeah. You know, back then, oh, that's course. why it was reserved for the wealthy or the people who controlled the press. And then everybody else just had to talk to someone else at a bar and it didn't make it any further. So, <laughs> well, as I've noticed and, and uh, often chuckle at, no matter the era or the time or the people or the society or the culture, there have always been people who have nothing better to do. Well, yeah. And here's the other thing. Back then, there wasn't a lot of anonymity either. Whereas today, everyone who has something critical to say, an overwhelming 
majority of them are not using their real names. In fact, yeah. this day and age, they have fake avatars and screen names. And whenever we get the really vitriolic emails ourselves, it's from a fake email account. They don't even have the courage to send it from a real account. So, Well, people don't want a response. Yeah, they don't want a response. They just want to <laughs> speak their piece in a vacuum of an echo chamber. So I, for one, think it's kind of interesting when you go back and look at this. I love this idea of like, well, I am a good person. And if you don't believe me, ask Colonel Bundy. And Colonel Bundy saying, right. these people are the salt of the earth. I know I served with X and Y here and there. Mm -hmm. And this is a good man. You can take my word for it. And then everybody's just like, oh, OK, well, I mean, these, <laughs> those guys said he was cool. I think he's probably cool, whatever, you know. Of course, there was gossip and things back in the day. Who knows the reality? The truth is we don't really know what these folks were right. really like in real life because you could maintain a public persona and something completely different behind the scenes, certainly back then as much as you can now, and it happens all the time. But I just think it's interesting that it, how hard it was to spread any kind of information, misinformation or genuine information. Back then, it was a whole different ballgame. Absolutely. And I think back then your reputation counted for a lot more than it perhaps does today, or people were more certain of it. Now, nobody knows what to believe, okay, until it makes the news and you get arrested. And then, and then you're on extra tonight and, and they're covering your, your sad case. But I wanted to say in this next section, which will focus uh, towards the end of it, heavily on the analysis of our good author here, H. Addington Bruce, in that he, he was very logical and analytical and I, I love the conclusions that he made. We're going to discuss you and I, Scott, whether we agree with them. But I think they're very clear. They're concise. He points to other cases that back up his theory or his hypotheses. But he was also very respectful of everyone involved. The Venoms, the Roths, Dr. Stevens, people of the era. And he doesn't say anything bad about them. He says, like, well, let's take into consideration what their thinking was then compared to what we know now, which would have been the decade just after the turn of the 20th century. So he published his findings in 1908 around this Watsika story. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at that. But before we do that, I was intrigued by the names that he mentioned, Bruce did, because I wanted to know more about them. And they're ones that I'd heard somewhat before, but I realized we didn't know much about the history and the contemporary circumstances of psychology and spiritism and how they all work back then. We just keep hearing these names come up again. It's like, yeah, I remember that guy. Well, how do they all fit together? Because what I've learned is that they're a very close-knit society here of academics and researchers and writers, and they all seem to kind of know each other. And when you dig into this little bit of history, it's fascinating. <laughs> Somebody should write a book because there's a lot of drama that goes with it too. Because a lot of these people are, well, this field is eccentric and it draws eccentrics and also very brilliant, smart people and how it all plays together. Well, and before we talk about H. Addington Bruce's position on this, and I know you said this in part one, but can you just refresh my memory about who he is relative to the story? He's the author of the book that you read as opposed to the one I read, right? Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I was confused, I will admit reading the edition that I got that essentially, this is what it is. Bruce wrote a commentary that is wrapped around a shorter version of the Watsika story that he compiled. So the, the edition that I have has the full Watsika story written by Stevens. Right. And then it has a, a shorter synopsis of the Watsika story. And around that, H. Addington Bruce, a science journalist of the day, 
that decade after the turn of the century, he wrote a commentary on it with analysis about what he thinks really happened. So I just want our listeners to understand, I only read E.W. Stevens, like the actual thing. I didn't get to right. read any commentary. You got the DVD with the extras. You got the Criterion <laughs> collection here. But yeah, the other yeah. thing that people need to know is it's not super contemporary. It was 30 years after. So we're talking about the early 1900s here. Yes, right. So this was published 1908. So uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to read from my notes here and you'll get this hopefully hang with me because it's a long winding story and I wrap it all up at the end in a nice bow, I think, which is a big change for what I usually do. (laughs) Okay. Hang on to your, your medical hats, whatever that is. Yes. My early 1900s medical hat. Oh, could that be a bowler? bowler? Yeah, Yeah, a bowler. Hang on to your bowlers. This is Austin from Texas. When I'm not playing bingo with the abominable snowman, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so now we're going to take a look at the more contemporary analysis, as I said, a, a more psychological, medical interpretation of the Watsika case. And that's going to be reflective of the era that immediately followed it. Okay, so it's fascinating to note here the, the different, perhaps more scientifically advanced yet still respectful viewpoint of a medical writer like H. Addington Bruce when he specifically looks at Lurency Venom's condition, but he's looking at it as a medical case more so and the possible causes for it. When I read uh, Stephen's account, he is a medical doctor. He's a, he's a licensed physician, but he's also coming more at it, I think, with his skills in spiritism. I don't know what he performed medically for her. I'm sure he checked her out as best they could. But he's coming at it from a spiritist's bag of uh, doctor tools, as you as you might say, or doctor's bag with, with those set of skills. So Bruce is coming at it from a different angle here. And again, his knowledge of, of psychology 30 years later. So yeah, you have to keep in mind that he was armed with a slightly more enlightened understanding of psychological disorders just after the turn of the 20th century when his commentary is published in 1908. So the Watsika case, remember this, happened in 1877, and Bruce did his writing on it some 31 years after it was publicly known. Okay, so we'll see what were some of the logical explanations for the mystifying actions and uh, bizarre claims from the current understanding of psychological disorders almost a generation later. That I found fascinating as well. How far have we come back then? So we're also going to give a brief overview of a few of the major notable figures of the era investigating psychical research, spiritism, and spiritualism, and the currently popular field of consciousness studies, which blows my mind to, to pun that in there. Yes. Punny. I love consciousness studies. It's just fascinating. It's the final frontier, our own minds and our own spirituality. So, uh, But knowing who these pioneers were in psychical research is relevant to this story, even if you don't think it is, not only because one of the prominent investigators at the time, Dr. Richard Hodgson, was fascinated by Lurency's case, but I believe you can draw a line from their scientific work and history to modern parapsychology as a whole. Although some historians of the field might take issue with that, with my connection, my drawing of the line, I, I realize that. But I also believe you can make a solid connection to some cases that we've discussed, like Sarah and the Spider Woman, maybe Annalisa Michelle, and even leading up to the work of Harold Putoff and Russell Targ and the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI International, and lab research into remote viewing. 
it's all connected, I think. You can, that's, that's a line I think you can draw. Certainly there's a connection uh, to the episode of Lady Wonder and the vanguard work of Joseph Banks or J.B. and his wife Louisa Rhine and their founding of parapsychology as a branch of psychology and the uh, parapsychology lab at Duke University, which is in our kind of news a lot these days. Well, of course, parapsychology, but also consciousness studies, as I said. I would love to visit Duke University and uh, check out their parapsychology lab, although I realize it's not a tourist attraction. And <laughs> it's not like, we're going to give you a bunch of demonstrations, but I would I'm love to just I'm not far from it. it. I mean, if, if I could get in there, I would go. We, we have the credentials, right? I'll just, I'll just bring the <laughs> DR60 and play file 10 for him. Let well, me in. Well, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's interesting. But you and I could also take classes at the Monroe Institute, which I would love to do one day. I would love to do that too. We got to find the time. I still want to learn more about remote viewing. Oh, I know. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think the early, the nascent field of psychical research and its focus on mediumship and communication with the dead, PSI, that's PSI, and ESP and psychic abilities, this all paved the way for our more modern and evolved understanding of the research into near-death experience uh, and the out-of-body experience, past lives spiritual and physical existence and the umbrella, again, of consciousness studies. So I think knowing who these people were and what they contributed and even the struggles of their personal lives as these phenomena are personal experiences, certainly it was what these families were talking about. And it's important and enlightening to what we're doing here. And I think it's worth talking about. So you might also call a lot of these folks some of the first established paranormal investigators or even ghost hunters. Based on the research that you came up with for this, as it unfolds, you find out that their approach is different from today's. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me not put the yeah. cart before the horse. People, okay. people bring gear today. <laughs> they bring what they feel is scientific gear to this today. But the, the psychological approach they take isn't always as scientific as these guys seem to have been taking it early on. Yeah, no, no, that, that's kind of my point. What I said just a few minutes ago is that they didn't have a lot of tech and gear. Look, I, I can bring a, a REM pod. I can bring a static meter. We can bring a, a, a Mel meter. There's all these meters you can bring. You can uh, do a flashlight trick. You can, you can have the SLS connect cam going and get a lot of weird stuff. So you know something odd is there. Something anomalous is in the room with you in the supposedly haunted location. Well... You can show all that to people who don't believe in this stuff. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah. If they're there and it's just like, oh, that, woo, woo, is, you know, the, the, the REM pod is doing a theremin thing. And well, what does that mean? It's like, well, something is breaking the proximity field of the device. Like, so, like, I don't see anything. Right. Until something passes through them or t scratches them or touches the back of their neck and they get a freaky chill down their spine. And they're like, what is that? Well, maybe you just imagine that too but you experience something and that's the only thing that hits home. So back then, mostly what these folks were armed with was observation of what they were seeing there compared to what they had studied, earlier case histories and how they could fit that together and then make an assessment of what was going on from what they knew. Not a lot of pharmacology going on and not a lot, as I said, electronic analysis of patients. So let's look at what H. Addington Bruce brought to the table for his analysis of the case 30 years after it happened. So our main character starting off, uh, <laughs> the analysis chapter of the Swatsika mystery is the author, as I said, or I, I guess you could say he's the editor, really, of the short version of the Watsika wonder 
and the author of the overview commentary on the details of the case, as we've been talking about, Henry Addington Bailey Bruce. That's, I wish I had four names. I only got three <laughs> names. Well, look at look at Jeremy Corbell. It, it makes you stand out, but also uh, it may deliver some derision as well. <laughs> but it's a great name for his production company, Four Names Productions, I think. Yes. Well, anyway, Henry Addington Bailey Bruce was best known just as H. Addington Bruce. And he was an American journalist and author of books on psychology. And of course, I want to keep saying his name is Bruce Addington, because <laughs> just saying Bruce makes it seem like this was all written by some dude named Bruce. And uh, <laughs> I just flopped that around. So yeah, it seems like his names are flipped. Well, who was this Mr. Bruce? Well, H. Addington Bruce uh, lived from 1874 to 1959, so well into the 20th century. And most likely, he saw a lot of progress and changes with research into psychology consciousness studies, and the study of individual patients' cases during his lifetime. He hailed from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and Bruce started off writing for Toronto Week. Uh, then he emigrated and wrote for the American Press Association and the periodical The Outlook. And then he became the psychology advisor to the Print Syndication Service Associated Newspapers, Incorporated. Bruce was also a book author and very successful in the genres of psychical research, modern psychology, and American history. In P.M. Dennis's 1991 article for the journal Psychological Reports titled Contributions to the History of Psychology, the subtitle credits Addington Bruce as, quote, psychology's first publicist. Hmm. So he's bringing it to the masses. A lot of people, you know, they didn't have psychology today and the more uh, layperson-oriented papers. Publications, right. Yeah. Publications, yeah. And so Dennis goes on to say he also popularized the subconscious and the power of suggestion before World War One. Now, we're going to hit on that phrase a lot, power of suggestion. That's kind of his big uh, thing here. Yeah, I'm, al I'm aligned with him on the, his theory here and how that applies to, to what we're talking about here. There's a lot of it that's really valid and worth taking a look at. So that figures heavily into his assessment of the Lurency Venom case, as we're going to see here in a bit. But the abstract of the PM Dennis article reads, I thought this was interesting to get to know who he is, between 1903 and America's entrance into World War I, journalist and psychologist H. Addington Bruce wrote numerous articles and books about psychology for the lay reader. At a time when widespread differences existed between psychologists as to subject matter and methods of study, he cultivated a decidedly progressive image of psychology dominated by the concepts of the subconscious and power of suggestion. In contrast to the more hereditarian and materialistic assumptions embraced by most academic psychologists, Bruce's promotion of the importance of the environmentalistic and spiritualistic to psychology lent popular scientific credibility to a progressive ideology and foreshadowed psychology's shift in the 1920s towards a greater emphasis on the environment and the interest in the unconscious. Hmm. Yeah, for a guy who's, uh, he's a science writer of sorts, but he's not really a psychologist. He did a lot for the field. Right. And especially for the public to understand these things and also to bring in the ideas of the unconscious and to, to dive more into that where I think that abstract would say it was more on the surface, like what's wrong with this person on the surface? Why are they acting like they are? So Bruce's concepts and writings were also reviewed favorably by the Journal of Abnormal Psychology and the Journal of Psychology. So by the general standards of many of his peers, he seemed to know what he was talking about. Bruce also became a trustee for the American Society for Psychical Research. 
Now, the next big name we're going to talk about may be one of the biggest names in the field of psychology within this group. He's legendary, astonishingly, you could say, and his name is William James. And H. Addington Bruce dedicated his 1908 book, The Riddle of Personality, to William James, who was an American psychologist, historian, and one of the most influential philosophers of the United States. He is known as the father of American psychology and the first educator to offer a psychology course in the U.S. Okay. Yeah. I'm known as the father of a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich because uh, I, I get the really thick bread and then really lay on the artisanal <laughs> peanut butter. Whoever gets called the father of anything. Yeah. I'm the father of my son, for sure. So I can say that at least. Fantastic. <laughs> no, at least you did something. I've made very little here except a long-winded podcast occasionally. So the idea here, though, is remember this guy's name. He's a bigwig. In 1991, the official peer-reviewed academic journal of the American Psychological Association, American Psychologist, published a survey of reputations ranking James in second place overall. Mm. In a 2002 article from the Quarterly Scientific Journal of the American Psychological Association called Review of General Psychology, they ranked James as the 14th most eminent psychologist of the 20th century. So again, remember that name, William James. He was also the brother of famous author Henry James. But aside from James's groundbreaking work in psychology and philosophy, he also wrote about religion, metaphysics, and mysticism, three topics I find really interesting. And that might point also to these topics back in the day being at least worthy enough for serious study and consideration by some of the 20th century's greatest minds. This guy's no slouch. He's extremely well-respected. But I think if you didn't know what I just told you about him and you heard how maybe woo-woo his interests were, you would dismiss him, at least nowadays. It's like, no, yeah. I guess I was like a wacko. Well, yeah, everybody gets dismissed at the drop of a hat these days. <laughs> I know, depending on what your predilections are. But <laughs> that's what I'm saying uh, with that passage is that these were subjects worthy of study. So to wrap up William James's little section here, the guy was considered a genius. I'll be that bold. Today, the adjective genius and moniker genius is thrown around way too much. This guy could have, I think, easily been considered a genius in his field. So he's taken this seriously. But back to Addington Bruce and his focus on the unconscious and the power of suggestion. Because a little along those lines, Bruce also took an interest and believed in telepathy and the concept of a subliminal self as put forward by Frederick W.H. Myers. Another big name we're going to talk about here. Interestingly enough, in Bruce's 1908 book, Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters, which is also in this Watsika edition I read, that's the other confusing thing is that there's an entirely separate shorter book or I don't know if you call it a miniature, it's it's not fiction, it's a, a treatise on, well, the title says, Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters, that Bruce wrote, which is also included in the edition that I got, the digital edition. So that's why I liked it. It's just, it's got several things in there, plus a scans of the original book. Yeah. Again, you got the Criterion Collection of <laughs> E.W. Well, Stevens' manuscript in all its forms with director commentary. I only have 
the original release, but yes. And that extra, extra stuff. I did love the the scans. I think you got that too of a very old copy, not as old as yours, but certainly turn of the century. So in any case, what you read from this is that overall Bruce takes the position that poltergeist activity was most likely due to fakery, hallucinations, or his big tent pole, the power of suggestion. So I'm trying to paint a picture here of where Addington Bruce is coming from with his viewpoint on these types of supernatural occurrences, where you're talking about possession specifically here. Those are his things. Mostly poltergeist activity of the day. You have to remember, in these people's days here and the people he's going to talk about earlier in the earlier generation, there were so many frauds because it was easy to pull off in a darkened room during a seance or a sitting, as they say that you could you could wow a lot of people with just some stage magic, as Houdini pointed out. That this field, or this, I guess, popular endeavor of mediumship and seances and all that, coming with these era of spiritualism, also came with a lot of people who were charlatans. Now, as we'll see later, some of the attitudes of these researchers was that not necessarily that, that meant they didn't have talent. It's that maybe they augmented that trying to impress people with some chicanery. So... I believe you have to keep that in mind. It's not one or the other. Yeah, well, marketing is everything. I mean, yeah. if you've got the talent to get people in the door, but not mm -hmm. quite enough to do more than that, then, you know, you put on a <laughs> bunch of lipstick and a, and a nice outfit and get better at the other things you're good at and make sure location, location, location. <laughs> <laughs> That's another interesting point you bring up because it's like with anything psi or paranormal, it's like you go to a haunted house, like this is the most haunted location ever in, in all the world and all of Scotland. And you go there, nothing happens. It's not a slot machine. It doesn't yeah. pay off every time. But if you well, want those tickets. You always say that, but you know, slot machines don't pay off every time, right? That metaphor. No, I, what I'm, what I'm saying. <laughs> hold on a second. I've just lost a lot of money. I'm playing the wrong ones, I guess. Right. <laughs> no. What I'm saying though is that it's going off the expression "paying off" like a slot machine, and that you you put a quarter in, and boom, all this treasure comes out. Yeah. In this case, what I'm talking about though is that it, it doesn't react to you. You put a you put a quarter in, you get a play. That's also yes. the thing. The, the real spin. You have some fun. Like exciting things happen. Yeah. You might not win money, but you yeah. can go to haunted house a hundred times in a row and nothing happens. Nothing. Zero. And yeah. you think like, well, that was that was baloney. I just spent a lot of dough on that. Nothing happened. And then maybe that one time you do get a spook. But what I'm saying here is that it's not controllable. And so when you're a medium, that's a good thing to keep in mind. You do a seance and <laughs> it's like the anecdote of our good friend Eric Robinson going to a, a pretty famous psychic medium, Rebecca Fearing, very talented, a lot of people believe. So he and his wife sit for a reading. He gets a great reading where he's told his spirit guide is Maimonides. His wife gets told, you make a good sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> what? I, yeah, she was I upset. pay for that? Yeah. I know I make a good sandwich. <laughs> no, I love that joke. But, you know, like I said, you don't get the, the, the full Monty every time you sit down with one of these folks. It just, you get what you get that comes through them, if you believe in that. And if you think it's fake, I think I would put a little effort into making everyone's sitting whiz-bang. Like, wow, I'm coming back to Well, her. especially yeah. if you're trying to make a living at it. And, and we know right. psychic mediums for, who, who work for free, and we know other ones who it's a source of income for them. But, and if you believe any of this at all, you find mm -hmm. that it's the more honest ones that seem more real anyway, where there's, where they're honest yeah. about how much data they aren't or aren't getting. If you do go yeah. and it's, and it's paying off like a slot machine that's actually come up with three matching 
symbols every time, then you're gonna it's gonna be suspect. So <laughs> that's true. Okay, yeah. So the phrase "paying off like a slot machine" when a slot machine pays off, how's that? Yeah, I still don't know. I think no. we need to. Look Sorry, for I'm gonna work. Else. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'm gonna work on that. Okay, okay, come great. up with a better analogy for you. No, I want to make it clear though. Bruce Addington, Bruce was pretty skeptical, as a lot of these folks are, even though they. They accept something's weird may happen, but they want to get to the root of why they happen, a scientific reason. So other things, again, where they, a lot of people get taken in by charlatans, they realize that. So they're very skeptical of stuff, of the phenomenon overall, but they're willing to entertain it. And so he's, again, it's funny, we still get comments of like, uh, you guys hate skeptics. Like, no, we don't. We don't like cynics. Oh, look, I'm cynical myself, especially about politics and social media. What I'm saying is that that's different than a debunker who doesn't believe any of this. Maybe like the amazing Randy, where he's a magician. Look, a lot of these guys are because they know how the the, the magic sausage is made on stage. They know where the the invisible fishing lines are and the mirrors are kept and, and how to do these things. So they're very skeptical because they see it all as mechanical. And if you go in with that attitude, well, you're going to find it or you're not going to have an explanation and you'll just chalk it up to, well, I don't know how they did it. You can even stump Penn and Teller. And I love that show where people, they were just like, we don't know how you did it. We, <laughs> you stumped us. And that's the aim of the show. But in this case, I think Bruce goes in with like, well, let's see what's happening here. Maybe there is a rational explanation. If we can, let's find it. These other spiritists like William James they probably had more things on the table that they were willing to consider, as we'll see here in a minute, that they were more encompassing of strange and unseen phenomena. So back to Bruce's case, I believe this seems like another indication that people of this field and the era took the study of psi, again, PSI, phenomenon seriously, but they could still remain skeptical and cautious about some of the implications and claims and or the related phenomena like mediums, seances, apparitions, and so forth. But on the other hand, some entertained notions of telepathy or telekinesis. But whatever their personal bents, they viewed them through their personal lenses. Or as Scott was saying, maybe even confirmation bias or just plain good old bias. So everybody's got bias. They all look at it from what they know and what they believe. Even these brightest minds all do. Again, you were talking about the edition that I got. That is the Scott Crusoe Publishing Edition. Uh, I believe his company is just Scott Crusoe. There's a little bit of funkiness with it. There's some photos that aren't very great, but you do get, like I said, Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters by Bruce. But I also found there's a little bit of confusion because there's another title called Ghost Hunters of Yesterday and Today, also from 1908. But Historic Ghosts and Ghost Hunters is listed as being published in 1909. So I think he put that out the next year, Bruce did. Sure. Still didn't clear anything up. Anyway, let's get to our next celebrity here, our big name, Frederick W.H. Myers. So this mindset of Bruce's though, Addington Bruce's, derived from his previous research and writing. So you might see that as greatly influencing his Watsika conclusions, of course. But let's talk about Frederick W.H. Myers. Who was he? Well, Frederick William Henry Myers, who developed his concept of a subliminal self, that Bruce was open to as a concept, the subliminal self, that he entertained it certainly, was interested in it. You have to realize that this was not accepted by mainstream science. Uh, but Myers was a British poet, classicist, philologist, and one of the founders of the Society for Psychical Research in 1883, and then he became its president in 1900. 
Well, since you brought up Frederick W.H. Myers, this is going to give us a chance to get into a book that I actually bought some time ago at the recommendation of one of our listeners on Twitter. Oh, yeah, yeah. This book is called The Irreducible Mind, or just Irreducible Mind, Tortoise Psychology for the 21st Century, credited to Edward F. Kelly, Emily Williams Kelly, Adam Crabtree, Alan Gauld, Michael Grosso, and Bruce Grayson. And this edition that I have is uh, Roman and Littlefield Publishers Incorporated. And this particular one that I have was published in 2007, first paperback in 2010. It's an amazing book. Yeah. Well, that's that's not the only thing she suggested. I, I actually scrolled back on Twitter to see her other suggestions. And she goes by Claire Soul Girl on Twitter. Yes. Uh, she also suggested the Flatland video. Remember yes, that? Yes, that's right. Yes, absolutely. The animated uh, portion of that, which I thought was a very good explainer, as well as another title, Consciousness Unbound, subtitle, Liberating Mind from the Tyranny of Materialism, edited by Edward F. Kelly. Not the Edward Kelly of... Of John D. fame. No, no but it's the it's same connected. Edward F. Kelly from Irreducible Mind. He's one of the authors of this yes, as well. And exactly. And these books are all connected. Yes. Yeah. No, they're all connected. And uh, here's an interesting side bit. I think she had mentioned that Edward Kelly interviews John Cleese. And there's a great clip of these two conversing about past lives, I think, and, and the near-death experience and the validity of that. And it's just fun to see John Cleese take an interest in that. Oh, that's uh, very With some cool. very good ideas. He's very well read, of course, in that. Also written by Paul Marshall, and uh, the quote on the front is by Dr. Eben Alexander, MD, who's also into near-death studies as well. So a lot of these names keep popping up. Bruce Grayson, of course, the title you mentioned, and we were talking about, I think, in regards to our Ouija series uh, is when when those came up. So all very good source material if you're interested in this in this topic. Well, what I want to do is read an excerpt here about F.W.H. Myers, since you introduced him, uh, just a little bit of background on him and how this all connects together. This is from uh, Chapter 2 of Irreducible Mind. The chapter is entitled, F.W.H. Myers and the Empirical Study of the Mind-Body Problem. I'm going to have a few more excerpts from this going forward. This particular chapter is credited to Emily Williams Kelly. She's a PhD in uh, the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia Health System. And she has education from the University of Edinburgh as well, and Duke Mm, University. mm -hmm. Edinburgh would also be where our friend Brandon Masulo studied parapsychology, uh, who's been a guest on the show. If you haven't heard that episode, look for that. But I want to read here. This is from her chapter about Myers. This is page 60 of the paperback copy of Irreducible Mind that I have. F.W.H. Myers was born at Keswick, England in 1843, the son of a liberal clergyman who died when Myers was eight. He went up to Cambridge University in 1860 and lived in Cambridge until his death in 1901. Skipping down a little bit here. Like many of the intellectual leaders of the mid-19th century, he had rejected the Christianity in which he had been raised because of its insufficient rational basis and the, quote, need of an inward make-believe, end quote. Although scientists such as those referred to earlier in this chapter were giving widespread currency to the new assumption that mind is a secondary byproduct of elementary material processes, this too seemed to him a gratuitous assumption that required closer scrutiny. To examine this assumption with novel lines of empirical research, Myers helped found the Society for Psychical Research, SPR, in 1882, an organization whose stated aim was to, quote, approach these various problems without prejudice or prepossession of any kind and in the same spirit of exact and unimpassioned inquiry which has enabled science to solve so many problems, once not less obscure nor less hotly debated, end quote. 
So that's what you were talking about, about him being one of the founders of the Society for Psychical Research. And this 1882, it's four years after this particular case we're talking about. Mm -hmm. In the SPR's early years, the phenomena studied included most prominently the study of hypnosis and mesmerism, telepathy, mediumship, and hallucinations. The larger purpose of psychical research, however, as conceived by its most prominent founders, was to examine such phenomena in light of their bearing on questions about the nature and place in the universe of mind or human personality. In addition to Myers, founders and early members of the SPR included prominent scientists and intellectual leaders such as Arthur and Gerald Balfour, W.F. Barrett, W.E. Gladstone, Sir Oliver Lodge, Lord Rayleigh, John Ruskin, F.C.S. Schiller, Henry Sidgwick, Eleanor Sidgwick, Balfour Stewart, Lord Tennyson, and Mm. J.J. Thompson, all of whom sought a more satisfactory understanding of human nature than the intellectual climate of the 19th century was providing. For the first two decades of the SPR's existence, Myers was one of its most active investigators and prolific writers, and his model of human personality, which he began to formulate in the early 1880s and then presented in detail in the 1890s in a series of nine papers on the subliminal self, became the theoretical framework for psychical research and remained so for decades. It is readily apparent from even a brief glance at Meyer's writings that his ultimate concern was with the question of whether individual personality survives death. Quote, the question for man most momentous of all is whether or no his personality involves any element which can survive bodily death. And this direction have always lain the greatest fears, the farthest reaching hopes, which could either oppress or stimulate mortal minds. Professor Kelly goes on to say his interest in psychology, therefore, was not purely academic. Although initially a poet and a classicist, he turned to science and psychology because he understood that the question of post-mortem survival was, in essence, the problem of the relation of mind and body, a problem not to be left to inward make-believe, but to be attacked by empirical methods. As William James, who you've introduced Mm. but not told us, fully his relevance yet. As William James, 1901, said at the time of Myers' death, Myers had, as it were, to recreate his personality before he became the wary critic of evidence, the skillful handler of hypothesis, the learned neurologist and omnivorous reader of biological and cosmological matter with whom in later years we were acquainted. The transformation came about because he needed to be all these things in order to work successfully at the problem that lay near his heart. So... That's a little background on Myers since you brought him into the picture. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That really illustrates his character much further, I think. And speaking of character, we also all have to keep in mind the list of psychical researchers, uh, the characters we're going to introduce next, were not only often controversial in their ideas, but for many, their personal lives were often mired in a lot of controversy and drama. And sometimes... Somewhat saucy, as with the case of Myers. This field seemed to, and still does, draw a lot of strong, eccentric personalities, you could say. And that can be exemplified in philosophy and religious thought professor Jeffrey Cripple at Rice University in Houston, who we've mentioned on the show before. He explores some of Myers' carnal connections to the paranormal in his book, Authors of the Impossible, the Paranormal and the Sacred. So I won't get into that, but it's it's a fascinating angle on it, what those two, you say, interests have with each other. So Cripple's work is excellent, I think, and he's really interesting to read. And again, uh, Rich Hannum brings him up a lot, uh, as well as Rob Christofferson, our, our two good friends. 
Well, we go on to find in historian Janet Oppenheim's 1985 book, The Other World, Spiritualism and Psychical Research in England, 1850 to 1914, uh, she states that Meyer's contemporary peers weren't entirely impressed with his concepts of the subliminal self and his psychical hypotheses, but he did influence the likes, as you said, of William James, uh, who you just mentioned. Yes. He's one of the greatest minds of the generation. He's influencing his thought on the subject. Now, get this. You're going to find this interesting after what you just read there in that passage. Grant posits that Myers, like a lot of scientists who found it challenging to maintain a Christian belief system after Charles Darwin's book on the origin of the species came out in 1859, Myers had a strong bias to believe in the paranormal as an alternative belief system or perhaps a form of religious replacement. So going on what you said, after Darwin's book came out, they were like, wait a second, does this not make any sense anymore scientifically? The idea of creationism is, is everything now evolution? Are we going to have to turn all this thinking on its head? What do we do here? Well, it was a crisis of confidence, I think, for a lot of scientists who either abandoned it or if they maintained with it, they were looking for alternative ways they could fit those supernatural ideas into a scientific mindset. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say William James never had a problem with that. Just very religious guy, pious, didn't really have a conflict with his Christian beliefs, I believe, and what he was interested in. It all seemed to work for him, or he didn't seem to have a conflict. Uh, he was pretty straightforward. When it comes to abnormal psychology and the clear-thinking individual, as he might say. But Scott, getting back to your statements, though, on uh, Dr. E.W. Stevens' biases, as we must not forget that you know, medical doctors are at their core, they're scientists too. That's what I was saying before. Maybe this, what I just said here, or actually what Grant was saying, was that this crisis of confidence or, or conscience in straightforward religious experience or belief system, maybe they were looking or biased to find something that was evidentiary to the existence of a spiritual realm, rather than pure, uh, you could say, uh, agnostic or atheistic science saying like, no, that's baloney. Anything spiritual does not fit. There's no proof of that. You're never going to prove it. It doesn't exist they were saying like, hey, is there room for this where we could have a case where we look at Lurency Vellum and see evidence of something like that? Let's, let's study this. Doctors, being scientists at their core, are they torn too and are still looking like Stevens is for, uh, or does he have a bias towards finding some proof of a supernatural afterlife? So other historians think this may have something to do with these psychical folks like Myers wanting to believe that there still existed a spiritual reality that could assure that physical, earthly death was not final, and exploring and authenticating phenomena like telepathy could affirm evidence of powers beyond the mundane and obvious physicality. So if you could prove that telepathy existed, and I believe William James thought, someday that's going to happen. Someday we're going to be able to prove scientifically telepathy exists. It works. And that's going to be our link to a supernatural understanding, or at least acceptance. You got to remember, going forward, there were a good number of these psychical researchers that were studying mental telepathy as an explanation for supernatural occurrences. That's their model. That's what they're going to try and make work here throughout their careers. But on the other hand, perhaps, regarding physical spirit mediums, 
a lot of them didn't buy into this stuff because of what I just explained earlier, that a lot of people got taken in. Big names got fooled and duped, made fools of. Except for Myers, he believed that although many mediums of the day were frauds, and he was fooled himself by mediums he endorsed as authentic, who later confessed and said, well, these scientific observers, they deserve to be fooled. He still believed that even the cheats could possess genuine mediumship skills. Perhaps like how I believe that you could be in the middle of faking a Bigfoot encounter or filming one and then see a genuine Bigfoot. We've come to know as the, the Jose Chung phenomenon or, or principle and that it doesn't mean anything. You, yes, it speaks to your character. And if you're going to present something and you're known for faking a lot of stuff, that's not going to help me believe your story more. Right, right. But I don't necessarily throw the, the paranormal baby out with the bathwater because you could be doing both at the same time. They logically can both exist at the same time. You can be a charlatan and have genuine psychic abilities. You could do a seance where some things that were coming in were possibly from the spirit world, if you'll allow that, but also be ringing a bell with your with your tootsies under the table. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the Jose Chung thing. You're in the middle of faking a an alien uh, abduction and the person doing it gets abducted. Those things can happen. Logically, like, that makes sense. That can happen. I mean, I think it's very unlikely, but... <laughs> <laughs> but they can both happen at the same time. Anyway, an overview of Frederick W.H. Meyer's work was published in 1903 after his death, and the collection was titled Human Personality and Its Survival of Bodily Death. Pretty good title. And according to an article on Meyer's called Images in Psychiatry and a contemporary review of the book at the time when it came out, it was Meyer's belief that the full range of human experience from normal psychological phenomena to the abnormal to the supernormal phenomena must all be considered when developing a unified theory of consciousness. And I, I think you have something to say on about the term supernormal, which I don't think we hear enough of. Yeah, this is, again, this is from Irreducible Mind, same chapter mm -hmm. by Emily Williams Kelly. This is on page 71. This is interesting how the word supernormal comes around. In an early essay, Myers expressed his belief that it is possible to reconcile the conflict between science and orthodoxy or religion which too often assumes the form of a sheer and barren contradiction. But to do so, it is first necessary to, quote, reject all question-begging terms, all phrases such as violations of the order of nature. He endorsed a general belief behind St. Augustine's statement that, quote, God does nothing against nature, end quote. No phenomena violate the laws of nature. Nevertheless, some phenomena may indeed go against nature as we know it in its familiar and ordinary way. End quote. Therefore, Myers urged antagonists in the controversy between naturalism and supernaturalism to move beyond the divergent and polarized positions in which their assumptions have fixed them. Quote, let us not oppose law and miracle. Let us not oppose the natural and the supernatural. End quote. Such polemical antitheses derive from the fact that on each side of the controversy, we find a reasonable prepossession pushed too often to an unreasonable extreme. As a first step toward resolving or reconciling the apparent contradiction between naturalism and supernaturalism, Myers rejected the word supernatural altogether as a meaningless word. All right, so Professor Kelly adds a section here from one of Myers' publications in 1885. This is all footnoted in her book, and, and we'll bring these references over to our show notes, which will take a good two or three days. She's got citations <laughs> literally every yeah. other sentence. Okay, so here we go. 
He ventured to coin the word supernormal to be applied to phenomena which are beyond what usually happens. Beyond, that is, in the sense of suggesting unknown psychical laws. It is thus formed on the analogy of abnormal. When we speak of an abnormal phenomenon, we do not mean one which contravenes natural laws, but one which exhibits them in an unusual or inexplicable form. Similarly, by a supernormal phenomenon, I mean not one which overrides natural laws, for I believe no such phenomenon to exist, but one which exhibits the action of laws higher in a psychical aspect than are discerned in action in everyday life. By higher, either in a psychical or in a physiological sense, I mean apparently belonging to a more advanced stage of evolution. Myers, 1885, page 30. I like it. Yeah, I really yeah. do. And that is the, you could say, perhaps the philosophy of some avenues of thought with psychical research. And you get at the philosophy of it, and that's how we understand it. So anyway, yeah, thanks for sharing that. That is, yes. uh, that's fascinating, because I, I like that idea that, again, going back to the idea that the abnormal is not some unnatural thing going against the laws of nature. It's just that we don't understand those laws that it's acting under yet. So let's strive to understand them, but let's not, again, toss them aside because it just seems impossible to our puny brains and limited view of experience. So in consideration of those things, Meyer's posthumous book, you know, his writing points to the cases of hypnotism, automatic writing, psychokinesis, telepathy, mediumship, and possession which he believed provided evidence for the existence of the soul and the survival of one's personality after death. And again, that's a difference in that you're not some innate vegetable on the other side. Your personality survives, who you are. We're going to look at later with Bruce's analysis what personality means from a psychological standpoint and what survives in a case like Lurency's. So that's important. It's not just being alive somewhere else. It's being who you are in another realm. In his book, Human Personality and its Survival of Bodily Death, Myers speculated on the idea of this subliminal self, which he thought may possibly be a deep region of the subconscious mind, which could be responsible for paranormal events. That's interesting to me. It is a place in your brain or your consciousness where paranormal events are originating or how you understand them or how you perceive them. Maybe not from outside. You know what I'm saying? That this comes from somewhere within your brain. Yeah. We've talked about this on the show. Yeah. A, a billion times. Yes, yeah, in a different form. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Because especially when, like, for example, on a paranormal investigation, when you have four people in a room and three of them hear a voice or a sound and then mm -hmm. one doesn't, mm -hmm. but they're all together right next to each other. That was when I was, I have always speculated on our show over and over. It's like, is that sound in the outside world at all? Right. Because then, and then there's the other case where you have an EVP or something that's picked up on a recording, but no one who was there heard it happen when it happened. So yeah. it's like there's a barrier or some sort of control between the perception of the mind and what's either happening in the real world or what's happening for each individual in the room. Yes. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's, it's fascinating to wonder how that all happened. It's the definition of a personal experience. Yeah, what is triggering that? You and I heard a great story from, I'm not going to say his name in case he doesn't want it out there, but we heard a great story at our meetup in Nashville about just that kind of thing where, and it was the reverse, where somebody was out in the woods 
they experienced what they thought was like this really weird acting fog and mist. Yeah, it was like a and ball a, of fog that he was looking at for almost half an hour. Yeah, roiling just yeah. like a lava lamp of of mist and fog. Yeah. That's what he saw. And then the people that were looking for him because he wandered off on the woods, what they saw was a guy. Standing and talking to him. Yeah, <laughs> so they, they came up to him. him. He was like, come over here. And they came up to him and he... And he said to them, he told us this at the meetup in Nashville, and they said to him, who was that guy standing with you? At which point he said he flew past <laughs> most of them who were all faster than himself to get back to the yeah. camp. Yeah. 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 It was what guy? Again, so I love that flipped thing. And we told him, it's like, well, look, it could be what was evidenced uh, in some of Linda Godfrey's stories about uh, Beast of Bray Road. When you capture something on a game cam, you lay out some roadkill, that gets absconded with, you go back to your game cam to look at what happened, and suddenly a fog arises, and in the next shot, the game is gone. The roadkill is gone. And then you wonder, like, well, what just took off with that? And then you wonder, well, if I was not looking at uh, digital images from a game cam, if I saw that, would I see a dog man or some other cryptid creature carrying off the carcass? <laughs> yeah, makes you wonder. But... That talks now about hallucinations. Now listen to this. Another one of Meyer's fascinating concepts was of a dreamlike world of images lying beyond the physical world he called the metatherial world. Here in the metatherial world, he argued that apparitions had an objective existence and occupied physical space, that these apparitions were not hallucinations but were real and existed in this metatherial world. Wrap your noodle around that. What he's saying is that when you're having a hallucination, it's not just an image your brain's producing, like it's misfiring, and suddenly now you, you see a giant spider with a human face on it, which everybody seems to go to nowadays. This thing actually exists somewhere. It's a real thing, but it exists in this metatherial world in its own space. It's a real thing that has, as he said, an objective existence not a subjective existence in your own head. So that's pretty far out. Uh, and to me, it sounds a little like describing a higher vibrational plane or another dimension, which many now believe could be a spirit world or plane of existence for impossible creatures and entities. I can't uh, hear another dimension without thinking of the Beastie Boys then. Oh. One of their late, <laughs> late, one of their last songs. Da, 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 another dimension, da, 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 another da, da, dimension. Da, 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 yeah. Da, 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 da. Okay. <laughs> So great. great tune. Yes. yes. Uh, no, I, me too. I, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that'll be all of the Beastie Boys uh, references for the next 10 minutes at least. <laughs> Hi, I'm Scott Taylor, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Getting back to this idea, though, I want you to uh, tell me what you think about this. Because like I said, it could be another dimension. And we've had people write us like, that's baloney. There's no other dimensions. And it's like, well, some of our best and brightest minds in theoretical physics are currently working on a mathematical model that could support at least 11 dimensions. As I am fond of mentioning, one of my scientific heroes, Michio Kaku, is working on that right now. There's another team working on 12 dimensions. 
He doesn't believe their math can support it. So I love it. it's a little math battle. Yeah, there's a math <laughs> war. How many dimensions? There's a math war going on. Yeah. But very, uh, very respectful. Uh, you guys are full of crap. Point. Signed, Jack, from the 13th dimension. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guess what? There's another one. You didn't You didn't carry over the nine. Yeah. <laughs> Look, for me, that in my math career, it's just like, oh, yeah, I did something mistakenly uh, dumb, as my math teacher would say, plug and chug. Is that now you just go in and you plug in all the numbers to get to the formula result that you want. I would have missed something and it didn't come out right. Right. I'm sorry. It's a sad story. Well, thank you very much. But getting back to the book, though, Human Personality and Its Survival of Bodily Death, he had co-authors on that. So the co-authors of that volume, Myers Contemporaries, Gurney and Podmore, they believed instead that apparitions were telepathic hallucinations. Right. Okay. Now think about that, in that they're still hallucinations, but... They are coming to you telepathically from somewhere or someone else. They don't exist in their own space. Because we haven't touched on this, I just quickly want to read just a little wiki entry on telepathy, just for people who don't know what it is, because we haven't been specific about it. Uh, telepathy is the purported vicarious transmission of information from one person to another without using, and by the way, that says one person to another, without mm -hmm. using any known human sensory channels or physical interaction. The term was first coined in 1882 by the classical scholar Frederick W.H. Myers, a founder of the Society for Psychical Research, and has remained more popular than the earlier expression, thought transference. So. <laughs> it's got more of a zing to it, but telepathy is going to come up a lot in not only these folks' history and their their schools of thought, but also with Lurency as an explanation of something more grounded. I know that doesn't make sense right now, but we're going to get to that. Yes. Telepathy, telepathy, remember that. So uh, we're beaming it out into your brains as you listen to this. Well, here's the thing about that, though. That, that kind of separates these thoughts of camps or these schools of just how people believed what this weird stuff we're seeing or where Lurency was getting your information is from a different source. That's where it's relevant here in this case, that what information she got, it's a big deal about where you believe it came from. Because one idea has a lot of different implications about spirituality, God, the nature of where we go after death. The other thought about this means it's more rooted probably in other people here on earth as it's happening. Maybe there's a spiritualist mundi aspect to it, but it's more, I would say, earthly in its ideas and implications. So overall, this book we're talking about, it was largely praised by parapsychologists and spiritualists who described it as, quote, the Bible of British psychical researchers. Not too shabby for a review, quote, yeah. <laughs> on, on a volume that you worked on with Gurney and Podmore, again, and also large. I think it was like two volumes, over a thousand pages. Overall, though, that book was pretty well-received, praised by parapsychologists and spiritualists who described it as, quote, the Bible of British psychical researchers, end quote. Not too shabby for a, a review quote. But of course, a handful of Myers' peers in psychology gave the book and his ideas a negative review. Again, we're seeing a shift here between mainstream psychology and parapsychology and psychical research. Divisions are starting to to form here. But going back to uh, William James, he gave it a positive review. The father of American psychology. <laughs> right. And of course, there's different branches of psychology and their practical uses in the field. And William James also praised another book of Myers uh, he co-authored called Phantasms of the Living. 
Are you sure that's a different book from the one you were already talking about? Yes, that is a different book. Okay. So yes, Phantasms of the Living is a, I believe it's a, a two-volume set here. Our listeners can't see this, but I'm holding something up for you to look at on yes. the camera. What does that say? Phantasms of the Living, Edward Gurney, right? Edmund yes. Gurney, Frederick William Henry Myers, Frank Podmore, Society for Psychical Research, Great Britain. So yes, they're contributing again. These guys are uh, thick as thieves in this business. Their books are getting a lot of praise and, you know, of course, uh, some rejection by a lot of mainstream psychologists thinking this stuff is really hurting the science of psychology. Well, I am excited as a ra very random book collector to say that I have this Phantasms yeah. of the Living Volume mm -hmm. 1. And I remember we came across the title probably on a show we did with Rich Adam, I imagine. And I was yeah. like, oh, I got to get that. <laughs> so I got that. I got right. Volume 1. Right. I don't have Volume 2 if there's another one. But it's been sitting behind me as a prop on my set here <laughs> for mm -hmm. months. I haven't read it yet. But now I know who Myers is. That's what I love about our show is learning yes. like, oh, my God, in a week I've learned so much. And now it's like, I'm so glad I got this book. It's already here. I can take the time to start reading it. But it's exciting to have have this book and then understand all this context that you're bringing to it and all this background for it. So I want to thank you for that. Well, it's awesome. Oh, yeah. You know, not only do I just love flapping my gums on our show, but it's also, uh, no, I want to know about this too, because here's the thing. This is what prompted me. As we get to Addington Bruce's analysis, which I found pretty credible and interesting and insightful, he mentions a few of these folks, and I'd heard the names, some of them, not all of them, and I was like, who's he talking about? What is this history here? Who is he referencing that he respects but thinks maybe we're off the mark a little bit? I want to know more about it. And then that took me down the rabbit hole of the history of this area of psychical research, which then we realized, like, man, this is kind of the foundation for all these other books that uh, Rich Adam and, and Claire are bringing up to us to read. It's like, that's the history of this stuff. Now we know the context of where this stuff comes from. That's why I thought it, it may seem like a huge detour by some listeners to learn see Venom, but it's understanding the context in which her case happened and how to understand it. Yeah, and I don't feel like it's a detour. And I will say that because that case was concurrent with the Renaissance era of this stuff happening. Like yeah, everyone, yeah. all these thoughts were gelling. The other thing I love about this is that there's this whole philosophy and culture around it that's gone now. People don't think about it right. anymore. It's been right. swept under the rug and everyone's moved forward and, oh, we need to be more practical and our hard definition of science and all that. They were wasting their time back then. And it's not the case. These are very learned folks who had mm -hmm. open minds about how to approach these strange happenings. And they also wanted to apply science to it, but they also understood there were things that they couldn't get. And But that didn't mean that it didn't exist or that there wasn't yeah. a, a scientific or natural reason behind it, if you read what Myers said in some of the excerpts I already read. so Yeah, th that's a great point, Scott, in that the phenomena doesn't care about your hubristic dismissal of it. It still happens. Right. <laughs> like, right. I don't care that you think this is ridiculous. It still occurs. You might say you're not understanding it right with all the your big smarty pants brains here, but it still happens. Weird stuff and unexplainable things still happen. So what do we do with that? Just continue to dismiss it or do we take a look at it? Right. That's what I love about these minds and that let's take a look at this stuff. It's kind of like getting back to that old Michael Shermer quote. Okay, if you take everything that's that's weird that happens, we can explain 80% of this. There's 20% we can't explain. Let's put that on a shelf. 
and forget about it. And look at the 80% we can. It's like, no, 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 get, get that 20% back again. Shermer is a noted skeptic, by the way, who we respect very much. But yes. No, no, I, I really do like his writings. I, yeah. I refer to them all the time, especially uh, his personal one about that rocked his uh, disbelief in the paranormal that yes. uh, it's this personal experience and very touching. No, I really like hearing him talk. And that's one interview with Jim Harold that he gave that I really clued into because uh, he was talking about this stuff. And it's just like, I no, I get it. You, his thing is not out of disrespect to reject it. Set. His point is that we're not going to get anywhere with that, that 20% that we can't explain or the 10%. So let's maybe not waste our time with that. Let's look at the things that maybe we can explain. So I, I understand his position. But again, for you know my childlike curiosity, I want to know what's really happening with the ultra weird or, as we know now, the supernormal. Mm, indeed. Indeed, indeed. Well, getting on with that book uh, and finishing up Meyer's section here, again, he got praise from William James, and then also James praised a book, Phantasms of the Living, which we just talked about. And also, here's another interesting thing. He got praise from Aldous Huxley, <laughs> so yes. the great writer. So people are starting to look at his ideas again, and uh, again, praise and a renewed look at his ideas appeared in the book you just mentioned, The 2007 Irreducible Mind by Edward F. Kelly. And, and a couple other names, and, and Bruce Grayson, who we talked about in our near-death experience series. Yes, and I'm going to close out this section on Myers with another excerpt from The Irreducible Mind. Again, this is from Chapter 2, written by Professor Emily Williams Kelly, PhD. Right. And I thought this was interesting, particularly as it relates to Lawrence Venom's case. This is on page 72. She is quoting Myers here. It became gradually plain to me that before we could safely mark off any group of manifestations as definitely implying an influence from beyond the grave, there was need of a more searching review of the capacity of man's incarnate personality than psychologists had thought it worth their while to undertake, end quote. Translating the mind-body problem into an empirical research problem thus became for Myers the primary challenge and task for psychology. It is important to emphasize again that the principle of psychophysiological correlation itself is not what was at issue, that there is some fundamental relationship between normal waking consciousness and the state of the brain was and is evident to scientists and non-scientists alike. Nevertheless, recognizing this correlation still leaves open the question of what it signifies. The first step towards translating the mind-body problem into an empirical problem, therefore, is to recognize that there is more than one way to interpret mind-body correlation. A few individuals have suggested that the brain may not produce consciousness, as the vast majority of 19th and 20th century scientists assumed. The brain may instead filter or shape consciousness. In that case, consciousness may be only partly dependent on the brain, and it might therefore conceivably survive the death of the body. I'm down with that. Um, that's my thing. Yeah, I'm going with that. Yeah, that intersects pun intended, with my the, my whole love for Flatland. It's the yeah, idea yeah, yeah. Right. of, you know, as the sphere intersects with the plane, all of the beings that live on the plane in the two-dimensional world, all they see is a line. But yes. the sphere exists outside that. So maybe we're the line of the sphere that's intersecting the plane. And maybe that's what we are here on Earth as humans. We're that, mm -hmm. we're that thin line that represents the, the larger sphere that can't be perceived outside yeah. of this construct. 
Yes, or, or we're in the cheesecloth that's straining the cheese and we can't see the wheel of cheese. We just see the rest of the cheesecloth. It's, uh, I know it's yes, thick, but what no, I'm saying better is better like, than oh your slot gosh. machine. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm with you on it. <laughs> All right. Well, Ooh, I have a lot of work ahead of me. Yes. No, Myers presented what is so far the most thoroughly worked out and empirically grounded version of this filter interpretation. See, look at that. It goes right mm -hmm. back to what you just said about the cheesecloth. Filter interpretation of mind-body correlation. Myers himself did not refer to the brain specifically as the filter, nor does he refer to the transmission model of consciousness as described by James or Schiller. Nevertheless, his huge body of published writings is largely an elaboration of the view that certain phenomena of psychology, particularly of abnormal psychology and psychical research, demonstrate that human personality is far more extensive than we ordinarily realize. That our normal waking consciousness called by Myers the supraliminal consciousness, mm -hmm. reflects simply those relatively few psychological elements and processes that have been selected from that more extensive consciousness, called by Myers the subliminal self, in adaptation to the demands of our present environment, and that the biological organism, instead of producing consciousness, is the adaptive mechanism that limits and shapes ordinary waking consciousness out of this larger, mostly latent self. Mm-hmm. And here's a summary taken, I, I believe, from Myers directly. There exists a more comprehensive consciousness, a profounder faculty, which for the most part remains potential only, but from which the consciousness and faculty of earth life are mere selections. No self of which we can here have cognizance is, in reality, more than a fragment of a larger self, revealed in a fashion at once shifting and limited through an organism, not so framed as to afford it full manifestation. Hmm. Angels driving trucks. That's the, uh, remember that one? <laughs> yeah. Essentially what they're saying is, and this also goes back to the things we've talked about before. That again is from The Irreducible Mind. We'll have a link to that mm -hmm. book for people that want to get deep on this stuff. Mm -hmm. That goes back to something that we've talked about before with some paranormal experiences that people have had and just the idea of this thread, like a silver thread that's coming out of you that right. maybe that is streaming back to this, the bigger consciousness. And yeah. all that, that we are as humans is just like a finger of our larger self. And it's just the amount that can be represented in this particular reality that we understand. If I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying that right. If <laughs> Dr. Kelly or anybody else listens to this and yeah. you want to correct us, please do. Uh, we'll be staying. Yeah, there. we'd love to have you on. Yeah. Well, no, I understand what you're saying. And there's different ways to look at that. Could be uh, like in the matrix, the carrier signal is that we are just representations here in this realm, but not the actual being sitting in the chair on the Nebuchadnezzar. We are just bumping into each other here in this fake world of sorts, but it's real enough. I mean, you can get killed in it. But for us, it's really not where we're really at. We're somewhere else. This is the signal transported down into this construct if you want to think about it, what you just said here reminded me of things like ayahuasca or DMT can disrupt that signal. That's what we were talking about in our near-death series. That might tweak. It's like, it's like the, you know, I, I just got a new webcam here. It's like tweaking the chroma way to the right and the contrast way down and the saturation and you're mixing all these things and suddenly it looks really bizarre and you're seeing things that you normally would not with these chemicals that just mess with the filters that are normally set to default. <laughs> so you right. click the default radio button, like now it's way off. But also, as we see in Mary Lurency's case, 
maybe with her attack or seizure, that tweaked some filter that normally would have prevented her from having a spiritual experience. Now that channel's wide open. Something's happening. People are coming through. It's like uh, now the TV channel is just wildly flipping until she gets to Mary Roth. Maybe something like that's happening, and maybe that's what Dr. Stevens was able to do when he said he magnetized her, quote-unquote, that he uh, leveled her out so she could at least tune in one station that makes sense, but something about her condition opened that up. Perhaps that's what's happening. Or sometimes, as we'll see in one of the cases that Bruce is going to talk about, an accident, a fall, hitting your head could possibly do something to alter your personality. So now we're going to look at another big gun of the psychical research and investigation era and realm and club. It seemed like a club, <laughs> one I'd like to belong to, because as we near a more contemporary or, I guess, turn-of-the-century hypothesis of what happened to Laurency Venom uh, some 30 years later from H. Addington Bruce, he mentions a couple of other notable figures in the psychical research scene in the era we should become familiar with, I believe. Because again, the Watsika case didn't happen in a vacuum. It's important and interesting to know how paranormal researchers back at that time thought about and studied cases like Lurency's, which involves spirit possession, as we've heard, or if not by spirits, then possibly some psychic phenomenon by some of Lurency slash Mary's knowledge, as uh, we've demonstrated. Something in there is being informed that seems impossible. That was noted by the people who saw it then. So what's happening? Well, we can also see how the science of psychology viewed a case like that then, and then one viewpoint 30 years later. That's also interesting to me, one generation later, that how do they view something like this when it happens, something so extraordinary? And then we're going to see one viewpoint that's modern, a current stance, up to today. And not only that, much more interestingly to me, how mainstream psychology and spiritism were so much more closely aligned back then, even my respected and learned folks in their field, which doesn't seem to be the mainstream nowadays. So aside from Dr. E. Winchester Stevens' observations of the case while it was happening, as both a physician and a spiritist, there was another well-known psychical investigator of the period who looked into the case a few years after it happened, Dr. Richard Hodgson. Have we mentioned? Yeah, I think you did mention his name, Hodgson. Yeah. Well, I mentioned him as an author on... Uh, yes, on that's right. Here, yeah. Well, Dr. Richard Hodgson was a psychical researcher from Australia, born 1855. He died in 1905, so he was a recent memory for H. Addington Bruce. His book came out just a few years later, so you'll see why he mentions him. But his bio info can be found in the, the book, The Spirit Book, The Encyclopedia of Clairvoyance, Channeling and Spirit Communication from Raymond Buckland in 2006. So move over, Tobin Spirit Guide. You have another spirit volume encyclopedia, which we're going to have to pick up. <laughs> <laughs> also from the recently passed Rosemary Guiley in 1994, the edition of the Guinness Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits. Another great volume to have on your coffee table. I'm going to go order it right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Very excellent. <laughs> I feel like something's out of print and hard it, to get It now. could very well yeah, be, yeah. yes. I just found these as sources to... Well, I seem to remember uh, somebody telling us that she took a, one of her books specifically out of print for a reason. Oh, yes, you're Do right. You remember that? Yeah, uh, she may have. That could have been Rob Kay who mentioned that to us, Rosemary yeah. Ellen Guiley. And I believe she has appeared in a, a few interviews on Jim Harold's The Paranormal Podcast, so check that out. Well, getting back to Hodgson, he received a Doctor of Law degree from the University of Melbourne 
1878, and then he moved to England to study poetry at St. John's College in Cambridge. And there he met his professor, Henry Sidgwick, and then in 1882 became a member of the Society of Psychical Research, or SPR. In 1887, he joined the American Society for Psychical Research and served as its secretary. So he was high up in the organization. So this is what I love. It's going to be a slew of these names. I'm going to throw out Fast and Furious to, to you, but you're going to have heard them before in either what we just recorded here or in a past episode. So here we go. Buckle up. In 1887, Richard Hodgson was sent by the Society for Psychical Research to India to investigate Helena Blavatsky at the Theosophical Headquarters in Madras. And we've mentioned Blavatsky more than a few times on the show. Remember her name? Me? Absolutely. Okay. Of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. All right. Yeah. I don't know about our listeners, but yes, I know. No, a lot of them have replied yeah. to us knowing a lot more about her than, than, than we have. But here's one instance where her vertical plane crosses into Flatland or whatever, or the cheesecloth, however you want to say it. Hodgson was sent to check this woman out. There was a lot of claims being made of a metaphysical paranormal nature, and he concluded that Blavatsky's psychic powers were a fraud. And after observing some uh, mystical letters that were supposedly sent by the otherworldly Mahatmas, or I guess you could say uh, ascended masters, the story go were supposed to have materialized in a cabinet mysteriously. Well, he concluded that Blavatsky wrote them herself, and then she slipped them through the wall into the cabinet from her bedroom. So, well, there you go. <laughs> well, a little bit of chicanery uh, there. Yeah, you know, again, she may have had some talent, but she's like, well, oh, you know, uh, this will get people believing and interested. And it's like, yes, that was pretty simple. You should have at least, I don't know, taped that up somehow. But he he <laughs> caught her, and it's like, ah, there you go. But he wasn't a total debunker. He did believe in mental mediumship, but he was critical of the physical mediumship, which we were talking about before, which he believed to be fraudulent. And then in his investigation, he'd exposed a number of well-known mediums of the day. So he had a pretty good hit list of taking down these big names, or at least proving in some instances that they were not all they were cracked up to be. So as covered in Walter Mann's 1919 book, The Follies and Frauds of Spiritualism, Another famous medium Hodgson debunked was Eusepia Palladino, the Italian medium and psychic, in 1894 and in 1895 with sittings with her, when she was invited first to psychical researcher Charles Richet's home in the Mediterranean. So he's another big name, uh, French, I believe, Charles Richet. And then the next year, she was invited to Cambridge, England, to Frederick Meyer's home in order to participate in a demonstration to authenticate her ability. So Hodgson was already getting suspicious of Palladino in the first Richet sitting, noting that the precautions against fraud were inadequate, and then she could have easily faked some of the seemingly supernatural effects of moving objects during a seance. Again, physical mediumship, not mental. The second sitting at Meyer's house, Richard Hodgson was in attendance along with a magician. Have you heard of this guy? John Neville Maskeline or Maskeline. Mm-mm. I don't know him. Yeah. We got to get a poster of him. You, yeah. <laughs> I want you to have 50 posters of great old timey magicians. Uh, yeah, I've got a few, but not. I don't have that guy. But he's a great he's a great person to take along, like the amazing Randy. We're never bagging on him. I, I love the amazing Randy for his approach. I just think he was a little too dismissive of some things, although uh, I wish he'd had a weird experience himself that he couldn't explain, like Joe Nickel did. Yeah. Where he's like, nope, oh, I give up. I guess there's something to intuition. I was stumped as a personal experience. 
so anyway, John Neville Maskelyne is a great person to have there along with Richard Hodgson. So they've studied a lot of this, uh, the techniques that were used in fakery. So during the seance, Hodgson caught Eusefia Palladino freeing a hand and using her foot to kick some furniture. And that mostly ended the career for the moment with the SPR and her. I was telling you before, this is what I read, how she did it. It's like you're in a darkened setting and everybody's supposed to join hands with the seance. This is how I understood it. Instead of her reaching over to the person next to her and then with her right hand reaching the other person's hand, she joined the hands together of the other person. So now her hands are free in the dark. How do you not notice someone <laughs> I don't, I don't is know. connecting your hand? You just lean back and hope they grab each other's hands, yeah. and then you can lift up the table, I guess. Here's the point is that these people, <laughs> the frauds, were good at this kind of sleight of hand, to yeah, point sure. of phrase, and that they, they knew these tricks. And they also knew mentalist tricks, like cold reading, and I'm going to talk about I that am, a little bit. I just am so fascinated with cold reading, because the people are good at it. I mean, it, it is like magic. Yeah. I mean, there's no, it's amazing. That's the purpose of the magician or the point. That's right. the art of the magician is that you think it's magic, but it's not. There's nothing right. magical about that. It's all mechanical. Yeah. But it's very clever, which is what I love. So that's what Richard Hodgson was on the lookout for. And again, I, I may have totally misrepresented what Palladino had done during the seance, but I believe that's what he caught her doing is that, in any case, she had a free hand and a free foot. Yeah. So she was kicking things and, and moving things around. And yeah. if you're in there like, oh my gosh, the tin horn levitated off the table. And now it was, uh, like I said to you, it was just her moving things around. And then under the table, well, that's what Houdini did. I think he took his shoe off, was able to clasp the handle on the, the ringing dinner bell and he rang it. So like, well, how do you do that? No one's doing anything. Like you can't see under the table what he's doing. Yeah. But that's that's what's causing that. Like, oh my gosh, it's the spirits. It's like, it's like no, it's not. No, she's she's like Eric Carr from Kiss, the drummer, just like that keeps <laughs> doing all kinds of tricks. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. It's just impossible things. By the way, you know what uh, I found out the other day? Yeah. Gene Simmons and I have the same birthday. What? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Same birthday. Also, he has COVID, which I don't. Yes. Well, yeah. don't no get togethers then. No. Uh, not, they had to they had to cancel a bunch of shows and everything. Oh, I mean, you, know, you and I saw yeah. him on our trip to Detroit in the airport. We did indeed. Yeah, and yeah. he was very nice. Was like, would you like a picture? Would you like I know. a picture? Well, he, we didn't. I was uh, stunned when he said that. Him. And uh, why, I don't know why we didn't say yes. I, 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 I still, know. I still regret that to this day. <laughs> I know. Well, next time that happens, uh, we'll bring up your icebreaker of having the same birthday. And then. Uh, yeah, now I know. Yeah. It's pictures I away. I yes. don't know if I'm ever going to bump into him in an airport again, but hey. And certainly in full makeup, he would have freaked these people out. Yeah. So here's some other names. Again, the Sidgwicks. So while Richard Hodgson and Eleanor Mildred Sidgwick, the wife of his mentor, Hodgson's mentor, Henry Sidgwick, remember he, he met him in college, they believed perhaps that, you know, most mediums were fraudulent. That was kind of their take. But getting back to Frederick H.W. Myers, Addington Bruce's mentor, he believed, as I said before, that a lot of mediums cheated. Yeah, sure. But they could also perform real feats of psychic mediumship or telekinetic ability. And in Palladino's case, in spite of being caught using trickery, Myers still believed that some of her ability was real. But then skeptics of Myers would also say, you know, this guy never really exposed any frauds in the field. So what is he talking about? Even <laughs> He's just sitting behind a desk saying people are uh, genuine or not. I mean, he did see some personal experience in the field, but I guess people, his critics didn't like that he wasn't skeptical enough. And he, I think at one point he uh, upset Richard Hodgson for 
still clinging to these beliefs that these people that he exposed as frauds to Myers still could be genuine in some aspect. Well, well, I mean, it just sounds like people are like, my guy's real. That one you picked isn't. They go, no, this guy's real. The other one isn't. Okay. But here, but wait, but here's the thing. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that they're exploring it. They're not just closing yes. it down and saying, oh, this is malarkey. I'm going to go write my next thesis. It's like, no, let's look into this stuff. Let's yeah. keep looking at it. And sure, if you identify a pattern, you start to uncover things. And But that's, go at it the same way that you go at any other scientific approach, say, yes, let's, yes. we can't rule every single one of these out until we've looked at an overwhelming preponderance of these cases and said categorically each time, oh, this is a fraud. This is a hoax. This yeah. is how they did it. This is how they did it. And I'm not saying, you know, going back to what you said about Penn and Teller being stomped and they have that whole show about it and they can be <laughs> yeah. stomped and they're clearly genius magicians and they can be stomped. Mm -hmm. So just because you're stomped doesn't mean that it can't still be a trick, but right. by the same token just because you're stumped doesn't also mean that it's not something beyond your comprehension. I get it. I get yeah. what you're saying, brother. Yeah. And I'm uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down, I think is how the well, expression goes. I, as no, long I totally as you and this. I understand each other and who cares who else Yeah, is no, no, right? it's... <laughs> That's my, <laughs> that's my thing is, look at everything. You know, yeah. that's, again, our, our roundtable with Blake from Monster Talk. Yes. Uh, that's what we proposed. It's like, why not consider everything? Our table's very large to consider everything. Some things seem ridiculous, sure, but let's just not say we're smarter than it. And that raised a lot of ire with his audience, and I apologize for that. And then he was like, <laughs> that kind of thinking's dangerous. That's stupid. It's These guys are ridiculous. Like, wait, it's dangerous? How is it? Yeah. I'm not telling anybody to go do anything about it. And here's something else on the connected to what you just said, Scott, in that, yeah, you should consider everything and you could have the mindset of a great skeptic and investigator and even debunker, but there's always one case that might get to you. And I just thought about the Amazing Randy documentary, which was terrific. Oh, yes. And it turns out he was duped in his own life. You know why he got taken, the amazing Randy, and, and how clever he is and, and how much we love his magic? Because he wanted to believe the lie. Yeah. He wanted to believe it, and he gave up his reason in something that seemed so obvious to us, looking from the outside. But here's what happened to Richard Hodgson. Yes. So now that we know about Richard Hodgson's reputation within the field that continues to this day, that he was a, a, a very serious and objective investigator of this kind of stuff, had a lot of uh, ideas on the table, but he wanted to get at the truth. He was willing to call a fig a fig and a trough a trough and tell you what he saw about this stuff. But there's one case that kind of, uh, let's say, started to unravel his sweater. Because even English secular humanist and rationalist author Joseph McCabe, former uh, clergyman, I think, he gave credit to Richard Hodgson for his medium debunking investigations, except for one. And it seems there's often just one case that can really get to a person in this field. And for Richard Hodgson, that was his belief in the medium, Mrs. Leonora Piper. So who was this Mrs. Piper? Well, Mrs. Leonora Evelina Simons, uh, I believe her maiden name is Simons, Piper, her married name, she was a famous American trance medium who drew a lot of investigative attention from the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research, and had a fair amount of belief and vouching of her abilities from the father of American psychology, William James. Yes. 
and Richard Hodgson. So again, two, you got two heavyweights vouching for you. But the critics, of course, would say, you know, she just used usual charlatan tricks like reading muscle fluctuations, which, man, that's a great CIA trick, isn't it? For, oh, yeah. Uh, well, they do with uh, our, our good friend who works for Scotland Yard uses the BAS technique, which is behavioral assessment. Are we supposed to talk about that? I didn't know we could talk about that. I didn't mention his name. Okay. No, we, you right. know why we have because... <laughs> We said this person's <laughs> assessment in the Bet Sphere that using that techniques, he believed our guest for the Bet Sphere and the way they presented the information. And just from hearing it, our friend had to pull over because he's like, wait a second, I really believe she's telling the truth. If she's telling the truth, what does that mean? Yes. There's a dangles silver ball from somewhere else. Yeah. Off planet or another dimension. Who knows? It's one of my favorite series we've ever done. Yeah. It just makes you think if some little thing like that or a ball that uh, does these weird things exists and they're telling the truth, again, what are the implications? Well, here we talk about some tricks of the charlatans of the day. Again, reading muscle fluctuations, fishing and cold reading which is using things like the reading of body language or age, clothing or fashion, your hairstyle, your gender or sexual orientation. The wiki entry for that goes on to say your religion or your ethnicity, your level of education, your manner of speech, your place of origin, all of these things a mentalist can use to make it seem like they know a lot more about you and to get you to open up where they can lead with that. And next thing you know, you're believing they've tapped into the other world about you. And a fraudulent psychic takes all of that to their advantage, or can, or a mentalist. Yes. Uh, and they do these tricks, and it seems amazing, but it's not. It's just a little bit of psychology and a little bit of manipulation. And again, that, that's also my, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes. And I, we saw it in film school. I think it's called uh, Big Top Alley, maybe. It's an old black and white film about the circus. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but one thing that always stuck with me is early on in the film... It's circus folk, and uh, somebody's retiring, I think. That person, uh, it's an older gentleman, uh, he's got the mind-reading booth, right, at the circus, or the, the fairway, the sideshow, and uh, he's going to give it to this younger guy. And I feel okay telling this story because I'm sure it's been a couple years since I did last, and not everybody listens to all the episodes. So the idea, <laughs> though, is that he, that guy's retiring, and he's saying, well, Sonny, you're going to have to take over the mind-reading booth. The guy goes, I don't, I'm not psychic. I don't know anything about mind-reading. How am I going to do that? And the guy goes, all right, watch this. I see you as a little boy. You're running through a field, and the sun's shining, and you're running through the weeds, and you're there with your dog. And he goes, oh, my God, I, I had a dog. How, how did you know that? The guy goes, Sonny, everybody had a dog. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the point is that, oh, I mean, yes, you find and latch onto the things that you, you know, but are pretty common. So yeah. this guy goes, I was a boy. I did run through a field with my dog. How did you know that? And the guy's saying like, look, you pick up on things that everybody does. And as that old SNL sketch goes that I love <laughs> about John Edward, he finds somebody in the audience and he goes, I'm seeing a B name. Like, no, C, no, D. E, F, G, H, H. There you go. That's right. And then you start building on that. I went to his show live. Oh, you did? What did you think? I don't know if I ever told this story. I feel like I mentioned this on the air before. I'll, I'll make it quick. But yeah, I went to okay. his show live. And on top of that, I was there with a very close friend whose husband worked at Cantor Fitzgerald and died on 9-11. Oh, my goodness. Of course, we were wondering if anything would come through. And this wasn't too long after 9-11. It's interesting that this would come up tonight, actually, considering mm. when this show was released. But the one thing I remember is waiting in line to go into the studio, 
no one came out. There was no fishing. There was no people asking right. questions. There was no one. Right. It didn't seem like anyone, because I was paying attention to all that. This was before we started the show, but I was still cognizant of cold reading and looking for assistance and people that might be listening. In fact, I said to my yeah. friend, let's not talk about your husband at all. Right. And we went in and nothing came up. Nothing came up with him. But mm. maybe that's because we didn't talk about him in the line outside. I don't know. I didn't see any obvious spies out there. But still, it was very convincing. A lot of the stuff that happened was very convincing. Okay. But, but I personally, I can conceive of it having been cold reading. But I, okay. if it is, the dude has got a doctorate in it. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I was there live. I went to a John Edwards show live. I almost forgot about that. Look, I, I give credit to people, like I say, about photos I see and, and uh, video clips. It's like, man, I don't know if this is real, but kudos for making it look so real. I'll give you, a, I'll give you points for that. If it's faked, as I always say, uh, well done. You know, it, it's entertaining. I'm not going to necessarily buy into it, but I will entertain it in all the meanings of that word. Well, let's get back to Mrs. Piper here. Yes, her critics would say she's just really good at these mentalist tricks, but William James believed her, and so did Richard Hodgson. And with William James's impeccable reputation and his standing as a founding member and vice president of the American Society for Psychical Research, his support for Leonora Piper's abilities helped make her famous. She was one of the the two, I, I think also Palladino, they were two of the most investigated and researched psychic mediums of the day. And of course, people still know their names. I didn't so much. I, I remember the names a little bit, but I didn't know much about them. So that's why I wanted to check into them too. Well, in Deborah Bloom's 2007 book, Ghost Hunters, William James and the Search for Scientific Proof of Life, she states that James's mother-in-law, suggested that he have a reading with Leonora Piper a year after his son died, and he became convinced she knew things that could only have been acquired using her psychic abilities. So again, keep that in mind. It's very right. personal. Right. It's, it hurts. It's tragic. It's a little bit like the Venoms. And here's a quote that we like, I like anyway, from William James when asked about his trusting of Piper's ability one which we've actually mentioned on the show. <laughs> and so I have a little joy here mentioning again in this context. And it goes, quote, If you wish to upset the law that all crows are black, it is enough if you prove that one crow is white. My white crow is Mrs. Piper, end quote. What I like about it is that we've mentioned that quote before because to me, that's a little like the uh, another saying that we like, which we've also said we've heard on Jim Harold's show, not all these stories have to be true. Just one story has to be true for the phenomena to exist. But I think at the time we said it, I didn't know the context. Now we know the context. Yes, we do. <laughs> so that was Everything that's is a small win. Yeah, this, boy, in this realm, certainly it is. But here's the twist with James's belief in Piper. He didn't believe she was obtaining the normally unknowable information through her mediumship with or communication and control of spirits. He hypothesized it was the use of telepathy and her getting information with more mentalist-like tricks. Important differentiation here. Keep yes. that in mind. Yes. Because here we go. He goes on to say uh, there's an, a Skeptical Inquirer article by Stuart Weiss titled William James and the Psychics. And I don't think, uh, well, that was from 2018, April of 2018. I'm not sure it's available without a membership or a subscription. So you might have to to buy one to find it. I'm pulling that from the wiki entry here for James because he goes on to explain his belief with this statement, quote, 
My own conviction is not evidence, but it seems fitting to record it. I am persuaded of the medium's honesty and of the genuineness of her trance, and although at first disposed to think that the hits she made were either lucky coincidences or the result of knowledge on her part of who the sitter was, meaning the person in the seance, and of his or her family affairs, I now believe her to be in possession of a power as yet unexplained. So, what he's saying is that I don't know where she's getting the information here, if it's just lucky or she already knew information about the people in the seance, but he believes that she's got a power that is not mundane. It could also be super normal. Yes. Yeah. Something happened in that seance that was outside of her. She's not really filtering the information. It just happened. It came from somewhere else. I don't so. know if I've ever effectively touched on this and I'll keep it brief because uh -huh. I keep interrupting you. You're, you're working through some amazing <laughs> stuff here and I love this presentation oh, thank you so of this much. information. But this is something that I feel like is a point that I always try to make and I'm not making it eloquently. It's right. But it's like once you get past, is this real or not? Just trying to make this light switch on off decision, this AB is like, no, this can't have happened. It did happen. It's mm -hmm. like, nope, you know what? It did happen. Get past right. that and move to the next level of, okay, it did happen. How did it happen? Focus yeah. on that instead of burning all your energy trying to deny that it's even possible. Yeah, and when you look back on it, it's hard to know there at the time what was really going on because there's some historians and researchers nowadays, they believe that Piper, Leonora Piper, got her information, her unbelievable info because James's housekeeper was friends with her housekeeper and they gossiped. Plausible. Did you know Master James? <laughs> yeah, like, well, I'm not yeah. going to say it's not plausible. No, but but here's the thing. You can you can lead We've with all that seen Downton Abbey. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> upstairs, downstairs. Upstairs, downstairs. Going here's down. the thing. That's the chink in the armor where you could crack open a person's disbelief with something amazing. Like, how do they know that? Well, your housekeeper heard you whisper that through the wall or the door, or when you didn't know that they were listening. You know, the other debunking thing is that, yes, people, uh, housekeepers listen to stuff. They hear things. And yeah. when you leave with that, you could think like, oh my gosh, how did you know that? It's like, well, it's pretty common. It's pretty yeah. mundane how they knew that, but you're amazed. And I just quickly, I'm going to make a long forgotten, vague pop culture reference to another mystical instance of this. A long time ago, HBO made a film about the transition of the late night TV shows between Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien and Johnny Carson and all of that stuff that was based on a book that's an excellent book called The Late Shift. HBO oh, yeah, made yeah. a movie about it. Yeah, read the book if you really want the great story, but if you want to see actually also a really great movie, try to find the HBO movie, The Late Shift. Yeah. And there's a scene in it where Jay Leno, yes, the Jay Leno, hid in a closet <laughs> and overheard yeah. an all-important meeting about all the negotiations and he took notes. Right. And then the next day he played that. That was his that was his checkmate. Mm -hmm. And the people that he played it against were like, How could he possibly know this? And it's like, Yeah, well, he was hiding in the closet in the room <laughs> right next to where you were having the meeting. Yeah. So yeah, you know what? That happens. It happens. <laughs> no, but it has a lot of impact when people are like, Oh my God, he's a he's a he's a genius. Yeah, Don't, well, that uh... changed late night television for those shows forever. It was a it was right. a huge event, but it wasn't a psychic event. But it could have been yeah. played that way in a long ago time. So. That's what I'm saying. It's it's hard to know. There are, are always explanations for things that lead up to a point, which is what I'm getting at here. Yeah. Because, you know, again, as I said earlier, James was convinced that sometime in the future, 
there's going to be proof of mental telepathy. But then other psychologists of the day, they just thought like, your psychical research is not scientific. You're doing a lot to damage the field. So you should probably stop doing it. They just thought that as smart as this guy was and as groundbreaking and pioneering in his thought and philosophy that this is, this poppycocks, uh, you're damaging the reputation of the field. It's almost as dangerous as when we went on Monster Talk. That's right. We're, <laughs> this is dangerous. You're changing my mind. Yeah, that's not likely to happen. You're going to go back to what you believed anyway, just narrower than our filter. So it's fine. You're going to be okay. I guarantee you'll be fine. Everyone else will too. Well, let's take a look here before we get into the last part of uh, Hodgson's life and career. I wanted to note there's a big difference here in the philosophy about where these psychical researchers think these mediums info is coming from, whether it's from the spirits of the deceased or the spirit world in general, or whether amazing and unknowable information is coming through telepathy. In other words, when a medium is saying a dead person is speaking through them, is it actually the spirit of the deceased person? Or is it the medium wittingly or unwittingly picking up on information from the living through a form of telepathy? So keep that in mind. That seems to be a big division in thought camps here. Right. And then the other just little tiny thought I'll interject there is mm -hmm. that that involves information coming from a living person. Yes. Not information that would be unattainable from living people. Right. In the case of Mary Roth, who had been dead for 12 years, as it relates to Barancy Venom, yeah. who had specific information about Mary Roth's life and was only three months old when Mary Roth died. And mm -hmm. there was information there that was very specific that it seems like she couldn't have gotten. So the question is, if people are in the room that Lorancy Venom could be having a telepathic relationship with, mm -hmm. those people would have to have information that maybe only Mary Roth had when she was alive, and it right. was exclusive to Mary Roth. So how could her mom know about the thing that Mary Roth went off and did by herself or the people that right. she knew that the parents didn't know she knew. So that's the the flip of that. Keep that in mind. Make a note of that because that's going to come back here with the analysis at the end of the contemporary analysis section. So that's an okay. important point you just made. We're going to revisit that. But to get back to Richard Hodgson and his interesting life and his circumstances here, you're going to make some connections here to something we already did an episode about. Hang tight. Okay, so Richard Hodgson's relationship with Leonora Piper and her mediumship took an unusual and sad turn. Although William James believed Piper was authentic and employed a form of telepathy, Hodgson was one of the few researchers who believed she really was communicating with spirits. Journalist and author Deborah Bloom, writing about Hodgson's connection to Piper, states that Hodgson became obsessed with Piper even taking to standing outside and staring at her house for long stretches, even during the blizzards of 1888. So what's interesting to me about this is that William James believes that it's telepathy, which would be messages that she's picking up from living people, and Hodgson believes that she's communicating with the spirit world. The, yes. the crux of this is that William James, the father of American psychology, right. thinks that she can read minds, and Hodgson thinks well, that she's talking to the dead. Both right. of them have gone past the point of hoax. They're just like, how is this working? Uh, yes. So I would say that both of them, I think with Piper saying that there's something going on with her that is, like I said, beyond the mundane, beyond the explainable, that as we know it, as you said, the supernormal being just nature that we don't understand yet, they would say, I, I think it's safe to say, 
It's beyond current science. It's beyond their current contemporary understanding of what's possible with human consciousness, with right. uh, abilities of this sort. Now, they're not saying anything about physical mediumship as far as ringing bells with your toes. <laughs> they're, they're just saying that the information she's coming up with seems to be from somewhere else. Now, right. it's debatable where that's coming from. So you're exactly right with that. But here's the sad part. Morton Henry Prince, he was an American physician specializing in neurology and abnormal psychology. Uh, he knew Hodgson, and he said that his prolonged interaction with Piper's mediumship, quote-unquote, wrecked his mind. Wow. Also, as stated in Janet Oppenheim's book, Other World, which we mentioned before, she mentions something that Hereward Carrington said about this situation here. Remember that name? I do remember that name. I actually remember him from episode 191, Ouija Stories, or Ouija <laughs> Stories. Good. About one minute and 47 seconds into that show, you mentioned him as being the author of the book from the Psychical Publishing Company about how to use a Ouija board. And there you no, go. I don't actually remember that. I looked at the transcript. But I still. would be blown I like away. To I would think you're yeah. a psychic medium somehow for pulling that out of the ethers. <laughs> but good job. Yes. Thank so you for saying again, ethers, uh... not something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ouija comes back as a connection. But of course, it has to deal with spiritualism in that sense. Yeah. According to these people, it just, it ruined them. And if you might remember, this is a bit now reminiscent of Joe Fisher's experience with the siren call of hungry ghosts. Richard Hodgson spent the remainder of his life alone in his apartment, not letting anyone into his room for fear they might disturb the quote-unquote magnetic atmosphere he believed allowed him to communicate directly with the spirits that control Leonora Piper. Oh, dear. That's what they call spirit control, too. You see that phrase a lot. That's yeah. when she gets taken over in this trance. Boom. It's a group of spirits manipulating her. But here's the thing is that uh, you get a little information and you want more. Well, and this is something you and I talked about, and we've we talked about it frequently, and I don't know if we've framed it effectively, but right. it, it comes back to that idea that yeah, it, it's the siren call, which I'm going to bring up again here in my conclusions in a minute. But okay. it's that whole idea that like, oh, I've tapped into this. And, and then it almost becomes like a drug where you're like, I'm connected right. to this person that I wasn't connected to before. And yes, I thought about that when I thought about Asa Roth reconnecting with his deceased daughter and also his wife, yes. Lorinda, reconnecting with their daughter. It's They want to get in there and have that connection again because it's lost forever. Right. And it's the same thing here, but then there's this idea and it plays back. And I, I, I hope Rich had him, love him. He doesn't always listen to our shows. He sees the title. He's like, what is that? I don't have time for that. He's, yeah. I hope to God he listens to this episode, even if he doesn't hear the first part, because a lot of this stuff is in his wheelhouse. Because oh, yeah. I think about in, in the Mothman prophecies in the movie, when Richard Gere's character becomes obsessed with reconnecting with his mm -hmm. wife and that whole question and that debate, which is a construct that Rich created based on Keel's writings and also Keel's own obsessions and the danger of it all and how you can get sucked into it. That's a recurring theme. Right. And it's almost like the more you make the connection, the more sucked in you get and the yeah. more dangerous it becomes. And it's ruining these people's lives. Yeah. And that's the whole look into the void. The void looks back to you. There's a point at which you're like, how hard are you trying to figure out how really how important is it to figure this out right now? And right. I think about that, Forrest, honestly, with our own show. It's like we're dissecting these things. <laughs> and I don't know, because if I made a connection to someone who has passed, who is really important to me, I mm -hmm. would be very wary of getting sucked into like really 
opening that up and trying to make it a two-way conversation. And I might, based on all the knowledge that I have, based on the siren call of Hungry Ghosts and this situation with Hodgson and and yeah. the other stories, and of course, Rich's take is fictional in the Mothman Prophecies movie, but like, I would take all that and say, you know what, let's back away from this a little bit and let's just right. do what we do while we're here and we'll figure that stuff out later when we move on. Well, yeah, th that's my stance is that it's okay to peek or peer into the void. It's not such a great idea to stare into the void, especially during a blizzard. There's a difference. You can you can take a peek. Once you start getting wrapped up into it, that's what the original phrase was talking about, is that you'll start to become a monster yourself. So be careful with that. And in this case here, I don't know what Piper's responsibility is. If you say that she's a total charlatan, then it was pretty irresponsible of her to tell him, Hodgson, that she was able to communicate with the spirit of his fiancée who passed away in 1879. And now he believed that he was receiving direct messages from her without Piper. She yes. set that, that connection up. Now he's he believes he's getting direct messages from his his love, his his fiance. And the messages from beyond came to him when he was alone at night, he thought, and he kept this mostly a secret, except for a very few people. And that's the problem here. Where are these messages coming from? Who's sending them? Can you trust the information? But you want to know more. And in Mothman Prophecies, Richard Gere is tempted with a phone call, possibly from his departed Deborah Messing. Do you want to take that just that one last phone call? Maybe it's her. It's like, and he realizes, no, I, I can't pick up that phone. It might be her. I don't know. And I can't trust it. But picking up the phone is just one more step to madness. Exactly. So that's when he makes the break and says, I got to live with the mystery. I got to live with the question. And that is the healthier part of that. And you see that when a lot of people who get into this field, who get too far into research, they give it up at some point. But as for Hodgson, before his death in 1905, at the age of 50, the spirits controlling Piper had told him that he would get married, have two kids and a long life. But Hodgson ended up dying just a few months later, proving the prediction wrong. So again, you got information, it was wrong, especially about him. Again, like Siren Call, like you're wrong about this. Like, how dare you point that out? I'm the spirit from the other side. It's like, I, I've got a, I got a lot going on back here. <laughs> you know, just cut me some slack. And of course, after Hodgson's death, Piper claimed to be in contact with Hodgson via seances and her spirit controllers. But none of the tests or controls that would convince anyone he was actually speaking through Piper from beyond the grave actually worked. Of course, they're going to set up tests. She couldn't decode any of his coded manuscripts. The answers she gave to questions about his early life in Australia put to her by his friends were all wrong. Now here's something that you and I would do. Hodgson had written a test letter before he died, and he said that if he were able to speak through Leonora Piper, he would reveal the contents. But the spirit supposedly facilitating Hodgson's communication through Piper didn't reveal the test letter. Kind of like your experience with John Edward. Right. Exactly. Now, does that mean it's a fraud or it just didn't come up? <laughs> we didn't get to it. Look, the show can only be so long. We're going to have to move you along and please see our, our, our next appearance for your other questions. Who knows? Well, what did William James have to think about all this as far as Hodgson coming back and communicating through Piper? 
Well, James wrote, I remain uncertain and await more facts, which may not point clearly to a conclusion for 50 or 100 years. So he was like, it's going to be a long time before we find out what really was going on here. But he did, like I said, he did think that eventually we would figure out what telepathy is. And maybe we will one day. A lot of people think uh, aliens have. Well, yeah, that goes back to, I mean, I've brought it up on the show before. Again, obscure references, but the book that I read that was self-published a many years ago now, maybe 15 years ago, called Above Black, was by a Bob Lazar-type character who right. said that he was involved in an operation where he went into trailers and communicated telepathically with aliens. And yeah. all he received was numbers. And his uh, job was to write the numbers down and pass them on to someone else. And he was strip-searched right. every time he went in. And when he came out, and all he was supposed to do was give the numbers to his superiors because they were a method of communication. But he was to be kept in the dark about what the numbers meant. Interesting. I mean, I don't know. It's crazy, but like, hey. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book. <laughs> okay. Look at Wood, uh, Woodrow Derenberger saying that Indrid Cold kind of spoke to him telepathically. So many alien experiencers say that they were spoken to or had uh, thoughts put into their head that they were spoken to telepathically. Well, and we come back to that whole thing. It's a, the line between that those relationships and then paranormal existence and then the personal experience and whether this is happening within or without, you know? Yeah, exactly. And look at Ben Rich. Uh, how do UFOs fly? Have you heard of ESP? That's how they fly. Right. By the way, I think that happened at a UCLA engineering speech that he was giving. That's when the students asked him about that in the parking lot. I think that's what the case was. Anyway, back to Richard Hodgson. That's the end of his life. He seemed to let his desire, the Buddhist reason for a lot of earthly suffering, his desire to communicate with his departed loved one consume his final days. And these are concepts we've talked about before, like we just said, with Rich and expressed to us by listeners such as Cullen and Anna, giving shout outs to people who have messaged us about these types of things. Yes. Um, you know, but Hodgson's work, his investigations, his good reputation, at least in his earlier years, lives on. And Addington Bruce has revived his insights into the Watsika case. And now we will revive both of their conclusions into this case. Will we now? It's a tall order. <laughs> yes, but, but we've come full circle to what H. Addington Bruce had to say about Richard Hodgson's investigation into the Laurency Venom case in Watsika and Bruce's own conclusion some 30 years later. So this is now where we pick up with Addington Bruce's writing about the case and his analysis. So yes, it's going to be a lot more talking for me. Dude, I'm enjoying this. This is awesome. Please hang with us. Yes. That, <laughs> Thank no, you. this is the kind of stuff that you bring to the show. I can't do it. It's like, oh. no, seriously, I love the academic research that you bring in because I'm fine reading a book and taking notes and doing a book report, mm -hmm. but man, nobody kills it like you do when it comes to coalescing a lot of outside data like this into a philosophy. It's amazing. So I really appreciate that, sincerely. Yeah. yeah. You've touched my heart, sir, and my psychic uh, buttons. Oh. Uh, no, seriously, thank that. you, though. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> no, seriously, thank you. I appreciate it. It's a lot of different books. I know I've, I've rattled off here, different sources. Uh, a lot of this can be summed up in each person's uh, wiki entry, too, if you just want to breeze through the, the summations. But the connections you and I have made are what you don't find in these entries. And right. You can get the data of when they lived and died and some quotes by them, but I've tried to piece this all together and circle it back to 
our topic, which many people think, wait, what was the topic again? I lost track two hours ago. Well, again, it's coming back to H. Well, those Addison people all, they're not listening anymore. So we don't I have know, to worry. <laughs> yeah. With the, the, uh, in the old days, folks, you know, TV went off the air sometimes at midnight. You'd yeah. The national anthem and they, yeah, uh, the flag and, uh, and then the, the test flag and an eagle. Up. And then a test pattern came on with the zero K tone. And that's like, go to bed. Yeah. Or shut the TV off and read a book, but you can't watch TV anymore. But I think when we come back full circle here, listen to this, because this is where I read from his writing and analysis that we talked about in this edition of the Watsika book. And I think it's really fascinating. And now it's informed by all the people he mentioned. So get this. He starts off in the beginning of his analysis or his commentary saying, quote, when the biography of the late Richard Hodgson is written, one of its most interesting chapters will be the story of his investigation into the strange case of Laurency Venom, arch inquisitor of the Society for Psychical Research, the Sherlock Holmes of professional detectives of the supernatural. In this instance, Hodgson was forced to confess himself beaten and to acknowledge that in his belief, the only satisfactory solution of the problem before him was to be had through recourse to the hypothesis that the dead can and do communicate with the living. Hi, this is Frida, and when I'm not searching for a crock of gold at the end of the rainbow, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. So continuing on with Bruce's introduction to his recap of the story, which leads into his analysis, he goes on to say, as is well known, subsequent inquiries and notably his experiences with the famous Mrs. Piper. See, now we know who these people are. So that's... That was also a benefit of uh, looking into the history of all this. I know yeah. who he's talking about here. Yes. <laughs> this led him to the enthusiastic endorsement of this hypothesis. But at the time of the Venom Affair, with the recollection of his triumphs in Europe and Asia fresh in his mind, he was still a thoroughgoing, if open-minded, skeptic. And to Laurency Venom must accordingly be given the credit of having brought him, so to speak, to the turning of the ways. This case baked his noodle, or just left him stumped. Bruce is not saying this, I did. Bruce goes on to say, though, oddly enough, too, scarce an effort has been made to assemble evidence and disproof of his findings in that case, and to develop a purely naturalistic explanation of a mystery which his verdict went far to establish in the minds of many as a classic illustration of supernatural action. Yet, while it must be admitted that until recently such a task would have been extremely difficult, it may safely be declared that the phenomena manifested through Luritzy Venom were not a whit more otherworldly than the phenomena produced by the tricksters whom Hodgson himself so skillfully and mercilessly exposed. That should tell you a, a tone of <laughs> what Bruce is getting at here. And again, he's being respectful, I think, to Hodgson, saying, well, at his time, I can understand why he'd be stumped. But if you look at it nowadays, 1908, I think we can look at it through a modern lens of his mm. day and see that maybe there are some natural explanations for this because we know a little bit more now about abnormal psychological behavior. That's what he's getting at. But as he goes on to write, he now recaps the story of Laurency Venom. So it's a shortened version of what Stevens had written. He encapsulates that faithfully. And then towards the end of that, H. Addington Bruce 
comes back with his analysis, which I will now read from. And, and so this kind of reads like a uh, detective case here, going uh, bit by bit and picking it apart, or at least seeing where there could be reasonable explanations of the day. All right, then. Now that Addington Bruce has summarized the case and pointed out things that he thought were uh, pretty interesting in Stephen's account, he sums up here and begins his analysis. And what he says is, Such was the situation at the time of Richard Hodgson's advent, primarily, as will be remembered by all who have followed the work of the Society for Psychical Research, Dr. Hodgson had come to this country to investigate the transmediumship of Mrs. Leonora Piper. And we know how that turned out now, don't we? That's right. But that's why that's why he came to the U.S. In Boy, little eyes. did he know at this... Okay, sorry. <laughs> little, little did he know at this time, like, yeah, you might want to not dig into that one too deeply. It's not right. going to be great for you. Right. But at this time, Bruce goes on to say, but his attention having been called to the Venom mystery, he visited Watsika in April 1890. Okay, so keep this in mind. The event was 1877. Mm -hmm. Hodgson is now there in 1890. And he goes on to say, and instituted a rigorous cross-examination of the surviving witnesses. Right. So it's 14 years later. By the way, it's yes. almost two years after the amount of time that had passed between Mary Roth's death and her supposed possession of Laurency Venom. Yeah. Which was 12 years, I believe. So, but now he's come 14 years later. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I seem to remember at this point, Laurency had moved away. But he got, yeah. he talked to other people who were still in town, right? Exactly. So here's here's where Bruce says who was still alive. So he said, Dr. Stevens at this point was dead, and Laurency herself had married and moved with her husband to Kansas. But Dr. Hodgson was able to interview Mr. and Mrs. Roth, Mrs. Alter, and a half dozen neighbors who had personal knowledge of the quote-unquote possession. All answered his questions freely and fully, reiterating the facts as given in Dr. Stevens' narrative and adding some interesting information hitherto not made public. In the main, this bore on the question of identity and tended to vindicate the reincarnation theory. It also developed that while Laurency had grown to be a strong, healthy woman, she had occasional returns of Mary's spirit in the years immediately following the chief visitation. And see, now that's not in Stevens' book. Right. He got done. So keep that in mind. She had occasional returns of Mary's spirit. But he goes on to say, but that these had ceased with her marriage to a man who, Roth regretfully observed, had never made himself acquainted with spiritism and therefore, quote, furnished poor conditions for further development in that direction, end quote. That's Mr. Roth, the father. Appreciating the fact that Mr. Roth and his family would furnish the best possible conditions for such development and that he must be on his guard against unconscious exaggeration and misstatement, Dr. Hodgson nevertheless deemed the evidence presented to him too strong to be explained away on naturalistic grounds. Contributing to the Religio-Philosophical Journal an account of his inquiry and of the additional data it had brought to light, he described the case as, quote, unique among the records of supernormal occurrences, end quote, and frankly admitted that he could not, quote, find any satisfactory interpretation of it except the spiritistic, end quote. So that's, it's like, <laughs> I asked a bunch of people who were still around and man, I, this has got to be from the spirit world. This has got to be genuine. I can't think of anything else 
that would explain all this, all the things that I've heard, and then the updates I've heard since Stevens reported on it. But again, consider that it's over a decade later, and he is talking to some people, but their stories haven't changed, but he wasn't actually there to see it happen. And now Lurency, she's married. She moved to Kansas. Since she married a guy who doesn't care about this kind of stuff, it all seems to have stopped. And not only doesn't care about it, it's my understanding he didn't want to talk about it. Like he he suppressed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that may have a factor in the analysis here. In fact, it does. Right. So Bruce goes on to say, yet, as was said at the outset, it may now be affirmed that another interpretation is possible and one far more satisfactory than the spiritistic. This, too, without impeaching in any way the truthfulness of the testimony given by Dr. Stevens, the Roths, and the numerous other witnesses. Here he goes. He's launching it. To begin, apart from the supernatural implications forced into it by the appearance of so-called spirit control, it, he's referred to page 188 of the original text Stevens wrote, it is clear that the affair bears a striking resemblance to the instances of, quote, secondary or, quote, multiple personality which recent research has discovered in such numbers and which are due to perfectly natural, if often obscure, causes. That's maybe one of the first times I've heard uh, in an old journal uh, or an article about secondary or multiple personality. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about that here in a minute. And I think I talked about it a little bit in part one, but yeah, this is a very early acknowledgement of that idea. Which, yeah, I, I don't know, again, a historian or a student of psychology might know when this was starting to be talked about, but I think it's uh, pretty interesting in this case because, of course, a lot of people now think, oh, come on, it's, yeah, multiple personality, right? Yeah. Well, it wasn't known back in Stephen's day. Now, Addington Bruce comes along and say, hey, what about this, though? This seems to happen. We have charted this. It's starting to sound a lot like this type of case, which is not spiritistic. It's an abnormality with personality. So Bruce goes on to write, in these, it has already been pointed out as the result of an illness, a blow, a shock, or some other unusual stimulus. There is a partial or complete effacement of the original personality of the victim and its replacement by a new personality, sometimes a radically different characteristics from the normal self. Okay, now this next part here that Bruce describes, listen to this, because he's giving case examples, which he thinks are similar enough to Lorenzi's case that uh, we could uh, use these examples to inform what happened to her. So he goes on to say, a sufficient example is the case of the Reverend Thomas C. Hanna, for knowledge of which the scientific world is indebted to Dr. Boris Sidis. Now, interesting side note about Boris Sidis, renowned psychologist of his time, he named his son William James Sidus. Oh, that's cool. uh, Who was the godfather of his son. Yeah. And William James has some notoriety of his own because Boris, the noted psychologist, and his wife raised their son to be like a child prodigy. Well, he was a child prodigy, so... I don't know what they did, but it makes me think of the Skinner box, and eh, it may not have been so cool. Certainly, though, he started off very promising. William James himself said that he was extremely intelligent, and other people had claimed that he had an extremely high IQ, 
It was also claimed, but not really proven, that he could speak about 25 languages. Oof. Wow. Here's the other thing. Yes, that's kind of interesting. The only time that, I speak uh, 25 languages is when I uh, hit my finger with a hammer accidentally. <laughs> and those are just the same <laughs> swear words in 25 different languages. Well, this is the thing. So uh, when you read through a little bit about him, it may have been a just overly proud parents and siblings yeah. exaggerating a little bit, but definitely he performed very well. He was a polyglot. So he, again, he could speak those languages. It was yeah. said he could read the New York Times at 18 months old. And by age eight, he had taught himself eight languages. And then he made up one of his own called Vendergood. Good so, Lord. Well, now, this is the point at which you have to start worrying. Okay, it's like, is this an experiment that they're conducting to see how much hooey they can pull over on the American public? I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. know. It's just, I mean, he started off, you know, again, he broke a record in 1909 by being the youngest person admitted to Harvard. His dad tried to get him in earlier, but they wouldn't allow that. But I think by age 11, he was going to college at Harvard. And I think within that year, 1910, he he gave a lecture for the Harvard Mathematical Club on four-dimensional bodies. And Whoa. so, yeah, he was a gifted kid and he was very precocious, started off very early. And uh, then he got very eccentric and he shied away from public life. And okay. he... It didn't do him very well, I think, to start off that quickly and to have that kind of training. And he got into a little bit of trouble with a protest here for the May Day uh, riots in Boston in 1919. And uh, I wanted to make this note down here because what was interesting is that his parents took him to California instead of him going to jail. And they made him rest at a sanatorium trying to reform him. And if he didn't comply, they were going to have him transferred to an insane asylum. Ugh. Another echo to Lurency, isn't that? Yeah. That, uh, yeah. There's nothing we can do with you, son. So uh, you better shape up and just behave. But in any case, just a very brilliant kid and the son of Boris Sidus and godson of William James. And uh, Boris was so impressed with his contemporary and peer and friend, William James, that he named his son after him. So, interesting little side note. Well, continuing on with Bruce's case here with the Reverend Dr. C. Hanna, and his doctor was Borisitis, taking care of him. What happened was this clergyman, Hanna, he took a fall from his carriage while he was in Connecticut. He's a Connecticut clergyman. And he lost all consciousness of his identity, he had no memory for the events of his life prior to the accident. He didn't recognize any of his friends. He, he couldn't read or write, and he couldn't even walk or talk. He was like a newborn child, Bruce writes. But here's the thing. On the other hand, as soon as some of the rudiments, he says, of education were acquired by him once more, he was learning to read and write again and walk and talk. He showed a lot of progress as a vigorous, independent, self-reliant personality, lacking all knowledge of the original personality, but still able to adapt himself readily to his environment and make headway in the world, Bruce writes. So he goes on to say, ultimately, through methods which are distinctively modern, Dr. Sidus was able to recall the vanished self and, fusing the secondary self with it, restore the clergyman to his former sphere of usefulness. So this is an interesting idea. With Dr. Sidus's case here, there are bits and pieces of Reverend Hannah's former self that he was able to reconstruct. He wasn't able to bring him back originally as he was Reverend Hannah before the accident, 
but he was developing a new personality. And what Dr. Sidus did was merge those two into a third new personality for Reverend Hannah. Okay. I'm sure people who knew Hannah were able to relay bits of his old personality that Hannah had forgotten. Dr. Sidus then used that to graft that onto his new third personality, which was a melding of the two. Pretty weird, huh? And, well, Bruce goes on to say, this is, of course, an extreme example. Uh, the usual procedure is for the secondary personality to retain some of the characteristics of the original self, as the ability to read, write, etc. Uh, it gives itself a name. And in this way, this sounds like the case of Ansel Bourne. This is a Rhode Island itinerant preacher, well, I don't, that's another preacher, <laughs> who became metamorphosed into A.J. Brown, a new personality. And without any recollection of his former career or relationships, he went to Pennsylvania. He started a new existence as a shopkeeper. There's another case that Bruce relays here. Dr. R. Osgood, Mason's patient named Alma Z, in whom the secondary personality assumed the odd name of Tui, spoke, as Dr. Mason phrased it, quote, in a peculiar childlike and Indian-like dialect, end quote and announced that her mission was to cure the broken-down physical organism of the original self, which remained completely in abeyance so long as Tui was in evidence. Okay, taking a pause here. In this case, which is interesting, and he makes a, a connection to, this person, Tui, was there to fix Alma physically, Alma Z, this, this patient. So now it's a lot like Mary Roth with Lurency. She's yeah. there to physically repair her as another character, this character, Tui. Bruce goes on to say, here, as is apparent, we have the case almost identical with that of Lurency Venom, the sole difference being that Tui, who, by the way, is credited with having exercised seemingly supernormal powers, did not pose as a returned visitant from the world of spirits. So that's a slight difference, but also had supernormal powers. Bruce goes on to write, thus far, then, depending on the argument from analogy, the presumption is strong that Lurency's case belongs to the same category as the cases just mentioned. In the one, as in others, we have a loss of the original self, development of a new self, and the enactment by the latter of a role conspicuously alien from that played by the former. So, weirdly, nothing like the old personality. He says, uh, the one difficulty in the way of unreserved acceptance of this view is the character of the secondary personality, which replaced Lurency's original personality. Here, the positive claim was made that the secondary personality was in reality the personality of a girl long dead. And by way of proof, vivid knowledge of the life, circumstances, and conduct of that girl was offered. But on this point... Considerable light is shed by the discovery that in a number of instances of secondary personality in which no supernatural pretensions are advanced, there is a notable sharpening of the faculties, knowledge being obtained telepathically or clairvoyantly, and by further discovery that it is quite possible to create experimentally secondary selves, assuming the characteristics of real persons who have died. Dig that. He's saying that in some cases the secondary new personality displays telepathic abilities. There are more cases like this, and that these sometimes can be the characteristics of dead people. Wait. <laughs> I'm not fully following it. Can you okay. simplify it for me? 
Yes, I, well, I'm, sorry, I'm I almost I on top yes. of it. I'm seventy percent right. on top of it. But like, uh, can you give me like a, an, an example? You can make up an example of what you're saying. Okay, so just to paraphrase what he said, and I, I'm going to do that a little bit because it is. Yeah. I know it's hard to follow. Yeah. So he's saying, well, you have this point here where there is proof that the secondary personality, and he's viewing it as a psychological case now, not possession. Okay, right, right. That this personality is a girl who was dead a long time ago before Lurency was born, right? Right. And that there is proof. But that's that personality is fabricated in his mind. Yes, it is. It's not a spirit. That's what he's saying. Right, okay. Here's the difference though, okay? Yeah. Is that, yes, this is a personality of a girl supposedly dead a long time ago. There's a lot of truth that she's saying about this person. There are a lot of facts that are provable. That's weird. And the conduct is like what she would have done in her former life. That's all true. But here's what's interesting. On that point, I think what Bruce is saying is that it's been proven before or has been the case before in other circumstances like this that the secondary personality in which no one claims anything supernatural about it, it's not a deceased person, it's not a spirit, that there is a notable sharpening of the faculties. So what he's saying is that, okay, it's not a spirit, but somehow this person has a secondary personality, a new one, and that that personality has knowledge that seems to have been obtained telepathically or with clairvoyance. So it's more, it's more capable. Yeah. It's not a spirit uh, who's giving the information, but whatever reason, this new secondary personality has psychic abilities. Right. Okay. That's what he's saying, which is also mind blowing. What, what that happens a lot? Like, yeah, apparently, according right. to according to Bruce, like that's happened before, where they displayed telepathic or clairvoyant abilities. Right. But he's saying, don't confuse that with talking to a dead spirit or being inhabited or possessed by a dead spirit. That's just something that happens. So that's pretty, that's pretty weird, right? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. and he's claiming that that's, here's what's kind of funny. He's claiming it's like, it's not spirits. It's just telepathy, right? That happens a lot for some reason. We don't know, but it's less woo woo. Is it? Which, is it though? Well, that's the, that's that the question. Woo-woo? Yeah. That's the question we're going to talk about here in a second. And that a lot of times this secondary personality has assumed characteristics and personalities of dead people. So that's interesting. So that's why, that's where he's leading this conversation. And that with Lorenzi, it's not that unique is kind of what he's saying. There's other echoes of it. So he goes on to say, in this, the creative force is nothing more or less than suggestion. Ding, ding, ding. That's his big thing. Suggestion, the power of suggestion. There is on record, indeed, an instance of mediumship in which the medium, an amateur investigator of the phenomenon of spiritism, clearly recognized that his various impersonations were suggested to him by the spectators. So then he goes on, uh, Bruce, to talk about the case of Charles Tout of Vancouver, and that uh, he got really interested in mediumship himself after attending a few seances. And then during one of them, he starts to assume a foreign personality, as it said. He'd let himself go with it, and to his amazement, without losing control completely of his consciousness, he took on the secondary personality. And that people could ask him questions and he would behave as this secondary personality of a discarnate spirit. This reminded me, I got to watch it again. It's been so long, but it it kind of reminds me of Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles and that there was a character there that he was a Martian, but he couldn't help it, but he took on the physicality and personality of somebody who desperately wanted him to be there. So that there story was a, scared the hell out of me. Ray Bradbury, freaking yeah. genius. It, <laughs> it just, was freaky. I love Ray Bradbury. 
I think, yeah, well, I remember distinctly because it was disturbing. One, the Martian takes refuge in a church, and the pastor or the priest there had lost his faith in God and Jesus, and he desperately wanted to see Jesus. So this poor alien was now crucified on the crucifix in the church, and he's like, oh my God, you're him. He's like, no, I'm not. Just, you got to stop thinking about that. Stop wishing it was him. Yeah. Because he would just take on this chameleon characteristic of people that want him to be something. And this is like what we're talking about here with Lurency and the Roths wanting Lurency to be Mary Roth. Right. Hang with me here. Okay. Hang in. Okay. So, so they basically, in the case of Charles Tout, what he noticed is that he was taking suggestions from the people in the seance saying here, uh, yielding to the impulse, he discovered much to his amazement that without losing complete control of his consciousness, he could develop a secondary self that would impose on the beholders as a discarnate spirit. On one occasion, he thus acted in a semi-conscious way, the part of a dead woman, the mother of a friend present, and the impersonation was accepted as a genuine case of spirit control. In another case, he fell ill and weak, and he almost fell to the floor Then he kind of came to, and as he says here, Charles Stout, I was in a measure still conscious of my actions, though not of my surroundings. I have a clear memory of seeing myself in the character of my dying father laying in the bed and in the room in which he died. Somebody suggested he commune with his dead father, and he took that on. And he said, it was the most curious sensation. I saw his shrunken hands and face. I lived again through his dying moments. Only now was I both myself and in an indistinct sort of way, my father, with his feelings and appearance. He's a hybrid person through this mediumship, this weird case that happened. He absorbed part of his dead father's personality. So now we're back to Bruce using this example, saying all this town explained correctly as the, quote, the dramatic working out by some half-conscious stratum of his personality of suggestions made at the time by other members of the circle. He's bringing it home here or received in prior experiences of the kind, end quote. In most instances, however, the original self is completely effaced, and no consciousness is retained of the performances of the secondary self. So the first personality goes away, the subject takes on a secondary self, there's no remembering of the first self, and he goes on to say that an avenue of sense is still open is sufficiently demonstrated by the readiness in which hypnotic experiments Seemingly insensible subjects, people who don't respond to any physical stimuli, they take on the suggestions fully of the operator, the hypnotist. Here, therefore, we find our clue to the solution of the mystery of Lurency Venom, a victim of psychic catastrophe, the cause of which must be left to conjecture, we don't know, in the absence of knowledge of her previous history. She was placed in precisely the position of the adventurous Mr. Tout and of the inert subject of the hypnotist's art. That is to say, having lost momentarily all knowledge and control of her own personality, the character her new personality would assume depended on the suggestions received from those about her. You see where this is going? Absolutely. So Bruce is concluding here, yet not altogether. Dr. Stevens' detailed record contains a reference which indicates strongly that the spiritistic tendency manifest from the onset of her trouble was to some extent predetermined. A few days before the first attack, she informed the family that, quote, there were persons in my room last night, and they called Rancy, Rancy, and I felt their breath on my face, end quote. And the next night, repeating the same story, she sought refuge in her mother's bed. These fanciful notions, 
symptomatic of the coming trouble and possibly provocative of it, would act in the way of a powerful autosuggestion and would of themselves explain why there resulted in inchoate, tentative, vague personality instead of the robust, definite personality that assumes control in most cases. So, from her own imagination and what happened to her, she set herself up for this, in a way, and others around her furthered it. Bruce goes on to say, at first, the reader will remember, she sought vainly and wildly and wholly subconsciously. It cannot be made too clear that she was no longer consciously responsible for her acts for a satisfactory self of ghostly origin. Remember, the Katarina, the masculine Willie, and the other imaginary beings were tried and rejected by her, principally, no doubt, because her 13-year-old imagination was unequal to the task of investing them with satisfactory attributes. She couldn't be a 60-year-old German woman. She didn't know how to be a little boy, subconsciously, anyway. So, from her relatives, she obtained no assistance in the strange quest. They couldn't help her give her information about being Little Willie or Katrina. They, disbelieving in spirits, persisted in calling her insane, a comfortless and far from beneficial suggestion. But with the intervention of the Roths and Dr. Stevens, everything changed. Not questioning the truth of her assertions, they confirmed her in them and offered her into the bargain ready-made personality. You see, her, her own parents were like, no, no, you're just, you're insane. You're not talking to spirits. Mr. Roth comes by, Dr. Stevens come by, and they say, no, this is possible. This gives her psychologically, subconsciously an out or permission to be Mary Roth. He goes on to say, here at last was something tangible, a starting point, a foundation stone. Mary Roth had had a real existence, had had thoughts, feelings, desires, a life of flesh and blood. And Mary, they assured the poor, perturbed, disintegrated self, could help her regain all that she had lost. Very well, let Mary come, and the sooner she came, the better. For knowledge of Mary, of her characteristics, her relationships, her friends, her earthly career, it was necessary only to tap telepathically the reservoir of information possessed by Mary's family, and there would be available besides a wealth of data in chance remarks, unconscious hints, unnoticed promptings, all the data she needed to be this other person. He goes on to write, she had been too long in search of a personality not to grasp at the opening now offered. Focused thus by suggestion, that subtle, all-pervasive influence which man is only now beginning to appreciate, the basic delusional idea promptly took root. It blossomed, and it burst into amazing fruition. So, she gets rid of the one she tried out earlier, Katrina's and Willie's. Those didn't work for her. However, Mary, about her own age, having passed away that long ago, this worked for her as a new personality. And she was so good at doing it that deception was not once detected, Bruce says. So here's an interesting point as well, why this happened to her, Lorency, that this suggestion of her possibly being the spirit or inhabited by the spirit of Mary Roth was not only to give her an out to express herself as the secondary personality, but it would promise to restore her to perfect health. Bruce says, if the responsibility for the creation rests on Dr. Stevens and the Roths, to them likewise belongs the credit for the cure. Their insistence on the fact that Mary's spirit could and would be of assistance was itself as powerful a suggestion as could be hit upon by the most expert of modern practitioners of psychotherapeutics, and in unconsciously persuading the spirit to set a limit to its time of possession 
they made another suggestion of rare curative value. So what he's saying here is that uh, they gave her the power to cure herself subconsciously and that you could be inhabited by Mary's spirit. She's going to fix you up, but she has to leave eventually. So it's a cure for a time. It's wanting to be believed by the Roths and Dr. Stevens and by Mary herself in this fractured existence. Mary Lurency, I mean. It works for everybody. And there's also a great part of this bargain here in their unknowing cure. You're going to be Mary Lurency Venom once again and a totally healthy and happy one after this is over. And Mary Roth's spirit will have to leave. This all sounded terrific. Uh, he goes on to say, it was as though the Roths had actually hypnotized her and given her commands that were to be obeyed with the fidelity characteristic of the obedience hypnotized subjects render to the operator. So it might as well have just hypnotized her to do all this, and she did it, and it worked. He says uh, here, when the time came, the transformation was duly affected, though, as has been seen, not without a struggle, a period of alternating personality with Mary at one moment supreme and Lurency at another. So what's happening there? There's a struggle, he said, but don't worry about this. This is a phenomenon that need give us no concern. Exactly the same thing happened in the last stages of the Hannah case. Nor do the fugitive recurrences of the Mary personality signify aught than that Lurency was still unduly suggestionable. Note that these recurrences, according to the available evidence, developed only when the Roths paid her visits, and that they ceased entirely upon her marriage to a man not interested in spiritism, and her removal to a distant part of the country. So Bruce ends his conclusion that, uh, well, the case was brought up again, in the Associated Sunday Magazine as the Watsika Wonder, and it was asserted by a resident of Watsika that although Lurency Venom unquestionably was a sufferer from, quote, nervous trouble, end quote, she consciously impersonated the spirit of Mary Roth, her motive being a desire to be near one of the Roth boys whom she imagined herself in love. So, questions. <laughs> <laughs> You kind of know what he was to, what, what he was to saying. Right? It all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can really pare this down having read it once more again here. So what he's saying with Mary Lurency is that she was probably not visited by spirits, but a few days before the first attack, in her imagination, she says, I was visited by spirits and they called Rancy Rancy. They touched my face. He's not giving any credence to this as a ghost encounter, but that was probably just her imagination. This set her up for a crack in her personality that would occur with this first seizure that may have been responsible for some earlier trauma that she suffered. So that's what he's saying before is that uh, there was no carriage crash where she hit her head, but something happened to her that we don't know about, but it set her up for this. And now this incident is going to take place. And what unfolded was no fault of anybody. They weren't trying to put one over on anybody. They weren't selling tickets or making a million dollars writing books. Right. What happened was a just a, a timed and coincidental series of accounts that turned her into this other person, Mary Roth. So she has this attack. She has this fit, as they would call it then. Her first personality fractures. She starts to look for two other personalities. First, a little Willie, not right. going to work. She's not a little boy, doesn't know anything about that. 
She's now a 60-year-old German woman named Katrina. Not going to work either. <laughs> now it's like the Terminator. He's like yes. in the boil, like, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm this person. Don't have the cop. Don't have the twins. I'm just yeah. not yeah, working. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, find something that works quickly. Okay, well, now comes Dr. Stevens, and he said, I can help you with this. She's not very polite at first, but then she hears that he's a spiritual doctor, or he can help with that. Boom, she's found her conduit. Then... Dr. Stevens and Mr. Roth unwittingly start suggesting ways for her to become Mary Roth or absorb into her personality. And here's the, the trick part of this. Where she's getting this information, she's pulling from the minds telepathically of the Roth parents of Dr. Stevens. Yeah, it just doesn't, that part of it doesn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was saying earlier with the history is that these other people like William James they're saying this crazy information about what Mary Roth would have been like, or the hat, or the tatting, the box of letters, all this stuff is knowable from other people's subconscious, from their minds, because they were there when Mary Roth actually did this. Laurency wasn't, but she's getting that information from their minds, somehow, telepathically. That's where it's coming from, not the spirit of Mary Roth. That's the big difference here that I want right. to point out. So, questions, comments? Well, no, I don't. I don't even know what to ask. Honestly, <laughs> it's a lot of information. It is. It is a lot of information. Uh, sorry, I've made this show four hours long. But here, here's the thing. This is kind of. Oh, we're going to cut all conclusion. this out. This will. Uh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I. I kind of wanted to read it again. So thank you for that opportunity. But I'm going to leave it to you. I'm going to turn it over to you. This is kind of my concluding thought here, as far as why we wanted to look into this. Once again, this case of Laurency Vellum, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It might be the right. third time I've said this. <laughs> it wasn't just some strange thing that happened to an old-timey weird girl who had a far-out claim or acted strangely. As with so many of our subjects, there is the incident or the concept itself, and then there is the important factor of how did people react to it at the time? How do we react to it now when we hear of things like this? Because you can choose to outright dismiss cases like this, or you can choose to believe some of it or all of it or or in any proportion you want. Even just hearing about cases like Lurency's changes our beliefs. They make you either change your mind a little or consider realities that are uncomfortable or it makes you reaffirm what you already believe. But whatever the case, these kinds of stories make you question your reality and your existence and what bigger question is there than that. So I don't know what to make of this all other than um, definitely spirit possession. <laughs> well that's the easy that would be so easy to leave it there right right but what do you yeah what are your conclusions what do you have to say about really about his conclusions and then i will just uh, interject little bits of mine here and there this is one of those mysteries that's really fun to try to get at the root of because right. you're trying to understand whether or not there's something paranormal going on or like you've talked about it's the power of suggestion it's people wanting to believe yeah. There's a lot of things that could have come into play here. So you have to look at the big picture. And and the reality is when it comes to the narrative, we only have one person's take on it. We have Dr. Yeah. Stevens' book. That's it. And it's like when you go back and you look at the Pied Piper or the other things that we've looked at and we're falling back on this one source and the older the source is, the more likely it is to be inaccurate. So there's a lot to take into account there. That said, there's apparently multiple witnesses in this case that have all gone on record and said, no, all this stuff did happen. We don't know what happened. 
We right. might be willy-nilly speculating about it. We don't understand science or paranormal or whatever, but all we can tell you is that there were 10 or 15 people involved in the story, and we all agree that this happened, and it was weird, and we <laughs> can't explain it. All of us, mm -hmm. all the people involved. Yeah. So I, I guess for me, sometimes we get into a topic that I'll internally refer to as a hot potato, and there's no question <laughs> this story is one of those because people are no doubt going to have very strong opinions about what may or may not have taken place in this case. Right. On, on top of that, this legend walks the ultimate hot potato line, really, because at least back in its original telling, it debates the idea that illnesses, both medical and pathology and psychiatric and pathology, might in some cases have causal roots in what we collectively refer to as the paranormal. We brought this up a few times between part one and part two. We talked about MPD, multiple personality disorder, or dissociative identity disorder, and I want to talk about that a little bit. There's no doubt that there are folks out there that are thinking that might be the only thing that's happening here. But let's keep in mind, and, and this just for me, most of what I've learned about MPD or DID has come from decidedly inaccurate movies, and I've never cracked a copy <laughs> of the DSM-5, although at least I do know yeah. it's five now and not four. It's my right. understanding that uh, DID or dissociative identity disorder is the thing that used to be incorrectly categorized by laymen such as myself as mm -hmm. schizophrenia that wasn't accurate. Now, I've read through cursory research that DID is brought about most of the time by childhood abuse, whereas schizophrenia is a more severe mental illness where patients cannot tell the difference between reality and fantasy, mm -hmm. while DID manifests more as having severe depression, memory loss, paranoia, unexplained phobias, and other things. Now, I took those explanations from the difference between .net, by the way. I'm not pretending to be an expert here or even right. an amateur, but I will point out that neither of those two conditions grants you omniscient, intimate knowledge of the relationships and experiences of someone who is deceased. Additionally, DID, again, dissociative identity disorder, is highly controversial, even today. Listen to this well-cited paragraph on it from uh, Wikipedia with over 18 sources connected to it. DID is among the most controversial of the dissociative disorders and among the most controversial disorders found in the DSM-5. The primary dispute is between those who believe DID is caused by traumatic stress, forcing the mind to split into multiple identities, each with a separate set of memories, and the belief that the symptoms of DID are produced artificially by certain psychotherapeutic practices or patients playing a role they believe appropriate for a person with DID. The debate between the two positions is characterized by intense disagreement. Research into this hypothesis has been characterized by poor methodology. Psychiatrist Joel Paris notes that the idea that a personality is capable of splitting into independent alters is an unproven assertion that is at odds with research and cognitive psychology. So hmm. there's that. Also, I'll point out that Mary Roth's sister, Minerva or Nervy, married a man whose name was Dr. Alter. Just connecting that back to independent alters of personalities. Just a little weird kind of thing. Whatever. I know so, there's a lot of there's a lot yeah. of those in this story. Yeah. yeah. So coming back around to the idea that we're not qualified for us and I to go a lot deeper into a DID diagnosis being connected to either Mary Roth or Mary Lorancy Venom, I'm going to move on to something that while we're still not experts in, we at least have several years of experience conducting our own brand of investigative journalism in for the sake of the show. Still, before I start pontificating, I'll quote Ferris Bueller 
after his horrific clarinet playing in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and say, never had one lesson. So this is yeah. where my thoughts on all this are about to get a bit dark. So stick with me here. Let's start with one of the most basic observations from the very beginning of Rancy's interactions with Dr. Stevens when she identifies him as a spiritual doctor and then proceeds to give him all kinds of false names and identities about who she is, which Forrest has just made a bunch of references to through the other observers of this case. If you believe any of this at all, she started out by lying to everyone about who or what she was. So we have to come down to the question of why was she doing that? Was she doing that for a psychological reason? As the researchers have suggested, it's she's shucking and jiving, trying to figure out what's going to fit, what's going to take. My question to you is not whether or not that's what's happening, but what the origin of it is. Yeah. Is the origin of that shuffling, is that internal or external? Is Rancy in charge of that shuffling or not? Now, mm -hmm. this aligns with something we've talked about numerous times on the idea of the trickster. This is a theme that comes through in these stories across centuries. We've told many of them on this show, and there will be many more, and you can't connect them to a particular scenario either. This sort of toying with the people observing the phenomena taking place happens across the paranormal spectrum, from Skinwalker Ranch to EVPs to things you thought you saw in a paranormal investigation to interactions, and in this case, with someone who seems to be channeling the dead. The trickster component is not beholden to someone who may have a psychological or medical illness, as in this case. It's present across all kinds of events and formats, many of which there's no living human even clearly involved in. Now, what gives me the chills is all of this seemingly omniscient but very corralled data that's being shared to prove to the living that they are in communication with a departed loved one. The exact same thing happens over and over in these very particular types of cases. Remember, nine times out of ten, when you're the one left behind in these scenarios, no one wants to believe more than you do who you're interacting with is real. It's grandpa. It's my, it, it's my dad. I can't even hardly type this without wincing. It's my departed child. When you make contact of some kind in these scenarios, your confirmation bias meter is off the charts. Now, skeptics and folks like the departed and respected Amazing Randy, as we've mentioned many times in this series, would mm -hmm. say, you're being a sucker for tricks being perpetrated by plain old mortals. I'm sure that happens. Perhaps you're getting cold read by carn artists all the time, but, but I've also experienced things now that are outside of that realm. So now I'm casting aside that every time a story this comes along, it's a hoax crafted here on the earthly plane. I'm now saying that, yeah, a lot of things about this smell like a hoax, but what if it's a hoax? not of this world. Mm. So anyway, after all of that pretending to be someone else and then turning around and grilling Dr. Stevens, this was before, according to Rancy anyway, Mary Roth was allowed to be in the driver's seat of her body. It was during this time that she posited all of these frantic questions to Stevens about where he was from, spouting off a long list of geographic locations that she may have learned about, we suppose, in her education, but it seems a teensy bit suspect. Then she asked him if he prayed, drank, and all that. What's happening here? Is whatever is occupying her, if you believe any of this at all, sizing up its primary target so as to affect better subterfuge? Is this just a hoax perpetrated by a young woman who was enjoying the attention, one who knew more about the deceased Mary Roth than we thought, or just enough at least to use what little knowledge she did have in conjunction with cold reading and wishful thinking on the part of those assessing her? Was she assessing the playing field and calculating her next moves at this early stage? thinking, how can I take this to the next level? 
That's the question you have to ask yourself here. Because if the information coming through in the rest of this story is accurate, and it's impossible for Lurency to have acquired it during her lifetime, especially having been three months old when Mary Roth died, then she couldn't be capable of hoaxing this. Something else has to be behind it. So those are my first assertions that this case may mm-hmm. be something more than earthly. The right. trickster component, and then if, and I know it's a big if, the interactions <laughs> with Rancy were accurately recorded, then there's knowledge that Rancy Venom could not have had about Mary Roth's life. We have to remember that all of these details about these interactions are being told by people that I firmly believe want to believe this story is supernatural or, as we've identified, supernormal. So I question every detail of every interaction. Were some of them exaggerated for effect so the author and others could convince folks to accept what they already believed, even if the evidence of it wasn't as overwhelming in the moment as they might have indicated? Since this was so long ago, there's no way to know that, really, unless some undiscovered manuscript is out there somewhere. Nevertheless, this takes me back to something we've already mentioned tonight, the siren call of hungry ghosts. For me personally, it's the most poignant book on how spiritual interaction might work that I've ever read in my life. It has permanently tainted my view of all of these types of stories. Keep in mind that before you even get to the point where you're invoking its philosophies and ideas, that you're past accepting whether or not what's happening is being influenced outside of our known reality. So you can't even go where I'm about to go unless you accept the fact that some kind of outside influence is at play here. Knowing that, consider the possibility that whatever entity is interacting with Mary Lawrence Benham, it's all a big con. Con artists and liars provide details to hide the fact that they're lying, which, point on a point, is a human pattern. So does that mean that whatever is at play here was at least once human? And the story of the channeling interaction in Siren Call, the author was routinely exposed via channeling or the temporary possession or spirit communication of someone to knowledge that was on the surface not only verifiable, but unattainable by the host sharing the words, just like Rancy, when she was possessed by Mary Roth. But the thing that the author of Siren Call, Joe Fisher, found out was that even though there was this astronomical level of detail to the information coming through that bore up to scrutiny, there was also information mixed in that was totally and completely wrong. The whole thing is a near-perfect match for the experience of sharing a jail cell with a con artist who gleans information from a cellmate who then uses it in the outside world to trick people who knew the cellmate into parting with money, goods, services, or love. Mm -hmm. Or look at any classic con, like the case of David Hampton, who tricked a bunch of rich Manhattan socialites into thinking he was the son of Sidney Poitier and conned them out of many thousands of dollars. Think about how those cons work. Then think about the strange details of the interactions offered in this book, the ones we've already gone over, like when Rancy, as Mary Roth said, do you remember when Nervy and I used to come over to your house and sing? A statement designed to wholeheartedly convince all who witnessed it being uttered that this was Mary Roth, but also to be endearing and almost too sweet. How could you not be supportive of the idea that this was Mary Roth? How about when Mary Roth's brother got sick after Rancy, as Mary, predicted it would happen? What if instead of a prediction, that illness was instigated by whatever this thing was possessing Rancy? Instigated in an attempt to make her seem as though she could predict the future. The essence of evil. At location 244 of 846 in the Kindle edition of Stephen's book, The Watsika Wonder, there is a line from Mary Roth's mother regarding the interactions that she's having with what is supposedly Mary occupying Lawrence's body. And she says, 
you don't know how much comfort we take with the dear angel. I would posit that the comfort that Mary Roth's parents and friends and family are taking is, in fact, what whatever this thing is, is after. Mm -hmm. It feeds on it. Like the line we heard in Season 5, Episode 6 of Paranormal Witness, called The Mothman Curse, when after visiting the area, one of the witnesses was back home and she got a call on her cell phone from a block number and the voice said, I'm going to eat your light. (laughs) Think about that. That one line could be given up the whole game right there. Something on the other side wants to experience the love, warmth, adulation of a departed soul's living family. What does it do? It takes the knowledge of everything that person had while alive, and it co-ops it enough to create a virtual feeding frenzy of love, reminiscence, and reunions. It becomes a smorgasbord of positive emotions that somehow help it continue. But I think there may be rules. This can only go on for so long, and to what end? Why does it stop? Is it like riding a roller coaster? There have to be machines to get the coaster up to the top of that first hill for the big drop. Maybe these things on the other side can't access a power supply that can pull that off more than once. I don't know. The red flag to watch out for, in my opinion, is the specificity of the convincing information. To me, in my mind, where it has gotten to now after these years of doing our show and looking into this, that overkill of specificity, which is also massively restricted by the immediate knowledge that maybe just one soul had when they were alive, it's the soul that the spirit messaging you is committed to making you believe they are. If you believe any of my hypothesis at all here, then the next thing you have to wonder is, where is the information your departed loved one had coming from? Are these things accessing some sort of cloud of information where everything co-mingles after death? Is it some kind of file cabinet in the sky, out there for any spirit to plunder? Or worse, is whatever you're communicating with holding your deceased loved one hostage and somehow extracting information from them so they can wow you? If you believe the source of information in a case like this is otherworldly, and not just a case like this, but an EVP, a voice from a dark corner of a haunted location, any otherworldly communication, how can you ever really know what you're communicating with? I think when you're getting that knowledge, it's not always a sign that you're in communication with a departed loved one. Maybe it could be sometimes, and I know that everything I've said is super cynical, but I'm just trying to be cautious. What if it never is? I'm not saying there's no life after death, no spirits. What I'm saying is, it may not be possible to communicate with them. Maybe this try hard, as my 12-year-old says when someone's playing a video game really hard, (laughs) maybe this try hard verification process that these things work so hard to convince you of who they are is a sign that you're interacting with something well beyond the scope of your comprehension. And more importantly, something with motivations that you'll never understand. Not in this lifetime, anyway. That's going to wrap up our series on Mary Lawrence Venom, or the Watsika Wonder. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Now. A-U-S. Now. B-E-N. Now. P-I-N-T-T. I'm listening. Now. This is Austin from Texas. This is Frida. Scott Taylor. I'm listening. Now. Thanks, guys. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. 
Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. (laughs) 